The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, welcome to the Cinematography Podcast, episode six. Six. We've done six of these now. That's right. In, and in only nine years. No, no. It's been uh, 11 months. So really, uh, we're just wrapping up our first year. Our first season. Our first were. season, yes. You know, six episodes in 12 months, 11 months is not was not the goal I set for the show. We didn't exactly reach what I was hoping to, but... I still feel that's pretty good. That's one yeah. every other month. I think we were saying like one every other week originally. Yeah, that that would have been 26 episodes. Well, we got the six part. So. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? I believe we will do better next year because we already have a couple more in the can. Yeah, we do. We're up and running, uh, hopefully going into 2015 with some more stuff. But let's let's kind of turn back the way back machine, Ilya. Let's talk about 2014. Uh, where would you like to start? What would you like to cover? You know, like I didn't go to NAB this year, although I try and go every year. I was working this year during NAB. The previous year I'd gone and I've every year I, I still, sh- I still have personally a 5d Mark two, not even a fancy pants Mark three. And I use it a good bit for, you know, small projects here and there. And for bigger projects, I either, you know, hit you up to lend me an, a nicer camera that you have in your fleet or, you know, rent something bigger, you know, like a, an Alexa or an Epic or something like that. And I'm always waiting for that killer moment where it's like, here's the camera that steals my love for the 5D Mark II. It is as big of a leap past the 5D Mark II that the 5D Mark II was past everything before it. And I feel like we haven't really had that. Okay, well, if we're going to talk about cameras, I'm going to disagree, but I know for you, your love is of the full frame sensor. So since there hasn't been a full frame sensor that has stolen the 5D Mark II's thunder for you, you're probably not going to be particularly happy with all the offerings that are out this year. However, I would argue that the most capable camera by far that's in a DSLR form factor uh, is probably the Panasonic GH4. Yeah, I knew you'd say that. Yeah, I mean, I've, I haven't made any, uh, I, I haven't held back on this before. I think I've talked about it, maybe even even talked about it on the on the podcast. But yeah, it's uh, amazing images, and it's a very low price. The price right now, it's actually they they did a promotion during the holidays. It's under fifteen hundred bucks. Yeah, I mean that's all decent, and you know you get a four K image and all that good stuff. I think for me, like a minimum sensor size that I would ever go for is probably Super Thirty Five. I think Micro Four Thirds is for my taste not exactly what I would want to own. There are instances where I think it, it's perfectly fine to shoot on a Micro Four Thirds sensor, um, but I don't know that I would run out and buy it. But I still think that that camera, uh, unless I unless I need four K, which I generally don't for my own small knock around kind of projects that camera doesn't necessarily like, like make me stand up and go like, okay, you know, forget my five D Mark II. I need this. Hmm. I think the one that's come closest to me is the black magic 4k camera, the production camera. But I think that there are just a few things that black magic got just wrong enough with that camera that make it, I think a perfectly awesome camera to rent, love the image from it. You know, I've used it once before, thanks to you, but would I shell out three grand for a camera that maxes out at 800 ISO? I'm not sure. So black magic came out with their next camera this year. And how's that going? Are you talking about the Ursa? 
that's the one I'm talking about. Uh, the Ursa is a very interesting beast. Uh, the Ursa had some fanfare coming out of um, NAB. Well, when did it finally hit the street? It just hit the street in the last maybe 60 days. So the last 60 days, Ursa's maybe 90 days they've been they've been shipping. And, um, you know, the market, the audience there for that camera hasn't really materialized the way I think Blackmagic would have hoped. And what do you think Blackmagic was thinking when they came up with that idea? I think they were coming up with uh, the idea of we're creating a camera for this next generation of people who are coming up who don't necessarily have maybe all the experience or maybe always wanted a 4k camera that was a full-size camera and that was you know studio quality production quality and never thought they could afford it so they priced it really aggressively however um there were some problems with the ergonomics Mm -hmm. Uh, I, i don't think it's a big mystery that it's uh one of the heaviest cameras out there right ergonomics now. is kind of the problem with all the black magic cameras in my opinion like none of them have perfect ergonomics the ergonomics are definitely tend to be challenging and they need a lot of help now that's not to say that they don't have dedicated bloggers and marketing and people and stuff out there who are trying to promote the the ursa camera as well as their production camera which is their 10 inch studio camera amazing price points and capabilities for this technology but you're right. It's not traditional cinema or television style for their design. It's yeah. really it's really a departure from everything else. And it seems to me that there were some people out there who were sitting on the fence who were like, I can't afford to get into doing this maybe the more traditional way with the more traditional tools. And so they decided to jump in from a cost perspective for Blackmagic. But I don't really see the big guys and the studios and the people who can choose whatever format they like abandoning what they had to go with black magic why not as like b or c or crash camera kind of cameras are they using them for those at all yeah black magic is definitely getting some use and there are some people who you know they've they've won some some people over with their uh dng raw we've had a certain number of people who've wanted 4k cameras a certain number of people who've asked for black magic but i've seen a real decline in the last six well let's say probably four or five months for sure interesting so, like, when people look back on 2014, the year in cinematography, where do you think we are? What's the state of the union? Where is cinematography right now? Cinematography is in a state of transition, and it's very interesting because uh, there are some amazing bits of tech that have come out, and uh, there's an, some amazing resurgence of low-tech that uh, is is existing. And by technology, I, I have to think that, you know, certainly starting probably before NAB, but during NAB, it was kind of like the year of the gimbal. I mean, it was yeah. all these different ways to create steady cam like shots without actually using a steady cam, like the movie and stuff, right? Like the movie and the DJI Ronin and some of these other brands out there. So would this year be the year of the drone then? Cause I just see drone everywhere. Yeah. I think 2015 is going to be a big drone year for sure. But I would actually argue that the last six months has been, it's been pretty interesting for drones here. And there's been a lot of oxygen taken up with all the discussion about uh, regulations. And there was actually a drone expo that just took place. The first real sort of large convention uh, in Los Angeles, they actually called it drone expo, but now is this like for camera drones or is this just people who like flying their drones around? Yeah, it was camera drones. There was a certainly a consumer element to it as well, which I wasn't quite expecting, but there was a lot of panel discussions. I I was on one of the panels. There's an insane number of consumer level drones. I was just at Fry's Electronics the other day and in the checkout area 
where it's like the impulse buy stuff. They had like at least six or seven different sizes and styles of drones you could buy in like the $35 zone. And, you know, like these, obviously you're not going to hook, you know, an Alexa onto one of these and fly it up 500 feet, but a GoPro camera, you probably could. Yes, that that's absolutely true. And most of those you're seeing at Fry's are kind of designed for playing around in your living room. You take it outside, you go up more than like 50 feet, you lose your signal, it crashes to the ground. And it was a $35 uh, experience that you might have just had because those things can't have too many impacts before they're they're done for. They're really might look cool on the on the GoPro. I'm, I'm still on my GoPro angle with this. You know, there, there's quite a few things that will hold a GoPro and several that are a bit more professional that you will actually allow you to uh, have a steady shot with your GoPro too, not just sort of like a, you know, no, I've seen some, I've seen some of those and they're not even really that expensive. They're like in the 1200 to $1,600 range, right? Yeah. You can get stuff less than that, depending on what sort of set that you need. But uh DJI phantom two with a gimbal cost you around that. So 1400 bucks, maybe nice. And anyway, uh, there, there was a bunch of other sort of interesting things that happened this year. Most of the big lens manufacturers, well, I'd say some of the big lens manufacturers released anamorphic lenses. First time in years, there's new, there's several choices. Cook came out with a line of anamorphics. Airy uh, Zeiss came out with their master anamorphics. And then there's a company out of Spain called Service Vision, which launched a line of anamorphic lenses. So what's driving this? And I'll, and and follow up question to that is these cameras don't have, you know, they don't have a four by three sensor. So if you're shooting anamorphic, you're actually losing pixels, right? Correct. You are cropping and throwing away a portion of the real estate of your 16 by nine sensor to get the true two, three, nine aspect ratio that you get from anamorphic. And you kind of have to do that because these are all two to one anamorphic lenses. Uh, I believe Vantage actually released a line of anamorphic lenses as well, too. They're the people who make the Hawk anamorphics. Uh, but Vantage has also stopped selling those. They're now rental only. So um, that kind of changes the dynamic. And I, I believe Panavision has an update to their anamorphics as well. So there's a couple of different rental only anamorphics out there. What I've actually noticed is um, there's a company in India which is rehousing old Japanese anamorphics made by Kowa. And the Koa anamorphics have had a huge resurgence. It used to be you could pick up a set of Koas for about twenty thousand dollars. Now they're going for about forty, forty-five thousand dollars. And why is that? What like what's driving the interest in anamorphic lenses specifically? Anamorphic lenses are getting used all over. They're getting used for web programming. They're getting used for Really? Yes. Oh yes. Music videos, a lot of stuff. Uh they're looking to in some ways degrade the image they're looking to the new digital cameras have so much resolution they look so sharp they look so great they want the flares they want the characteristics the out of focus bokeh they want uh the things that that come along with the the artifacts of uh anamorphic and uh this trend is turned into big bucks for uh certainly for cook i i talked to the people over at cook just the other day it's a two-year wait right now for those lenses good so, lord in two years it'll be a different trend too and and i'll tell you it's like these you know the master anamorphics from from airy zeiss are the most expensive ones out there i mean they're very expensive lenses so uh every single one of those lenses that gets sold it's you know in many parts of this country it's a house <laughs> it's like <laughs> that's 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 how much these go for yeah. and sets of them are you buy a set of them, you can almost, it's almost like a, a house in Los Angeles. <laughs> so Priced to rent, as I like to say. Yeah, they're, 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 uh, they're kind of amazing, but I was just involved in a discussion with some people online who were asking why there aren't inexpensive anamorphics. And there are some inexpensive anamorphics, but you have to realize that what exists for the hobbyist set or the entry-level anamorphic uh, folk out there 
is a far cry from the actual professional lenses. Uh, you have to focus your anamorphic element and your spherical lens, which make up the full anamorphic lens together. They both have to move. And so a lot of these adapters kind of give you little ranges that you can adjust, but you can't really work professionally with a lot of these adapters. Yeah. They just don't, don't allow you to. Also, they don't necessarily get the flares right. The flares are a bit different and they only work with certain focal lengths. There's all kinds of uh, drawbacks to it. And some people are taking old projection lenses and putting the projection lens in front of a lens and they're <laughs> actually trying to take a device that... I should was... have stolen all those lenses when I was a projectionist. <laughs> I should have just put them in my bag and left. Well, well you can go onto eBay and some of them fetch a fairly good dollar amount, but really you're taking something there that was designed to have light come through it like outwards and now have light coming in through it. And really you end up with all kinds of distortions. There's some really, yeah, interesting... that might be, that might be interesting to, I mean, like it might be something unexpected and fun. I think that what a lot of this brings up too, and sometimes I encounter this when I'm talking to filmmakers who've been doing it for, you know, people who started within the last 10 years is that uh, the, the difference between an item that's priced to buy and priced to rent, because I think we all got used to this idea starting with the 5D Mark II and kind of the DSLR situation where, uh, you know, like I'm going to buy a camera, I'm going to buy lenses. And, you know, I know so many people, myself being, I'm definitely one of them, where I fell down a rabbit hole of like, ooh, now I want, you know, a good 50 millimeter lens. Ooh, now I want a good 100 millimeter lens. You know, I know uh, a good friend of, actually a friend of the program, Kay's Alatraxi, the guy who did our music, man, he like went lens nutty when he started uh, actually making his own films. Hmm. And he has a ridiculous number of lenses and he gets these weird Russian lenses that have like interesting characteristics and stuff to them. And it's, it's all cool. I feel like it's hard to explain to somebody who came up in this era that a cook lens is going to give you a different quality that's above and beyond what you're going to get with your $250 Canon kit lens or whatever. It's going to give you a much better quality image. Is your expensive lens going to make such a better image than your cheap lens? Is that what you're asking? Well, I, I think that it's undeniable that your professional lens is going to make a better image, but are you going to be creating something that's going to live on the internet, going to be on YouTube or Vimeo or you know on your webpage or wherever you're going to put something like that, funny or die or whatever? Or are you making an image that's supposed to be blown up and be a couple hundred feet across? And, uh, you know, like when you're working with those lenses and doing the color grade, like I think that a lot of that generation of, of filmmakers, the new, the current generation of filmmakers, really, like they haven't necessarily been as focused on like, I'm going to make a movie that's going to play in theaters or even I'm going to make a TV series that's going to be broadcast on HBO. And so they're not necessarily thinking in terms of, the highest quality lenses are even, I, I feel like maybe to a certain degree more than you and I, when we were like, not necessarily you or I, but our generation, you know, coming up using 16 millimeter and using beta SP or HD uh, cameras with two third inch CCDs, you're not thinking in terms of cinema lenses, but now we're thinking the same focal length as cinema lenses, but we're not thinking the same kind of lenses. Does that make sense? Am I just going off on a weird tangent? I think I know where you're going with this, but what I was going to say is that there's a real misconception that because I have a $250 lens and I have a $40,000 lens, that the image that comes out of the $250 lens is going to be in some way fundamentally unusable when compared with that $40,000 oh, lens. Oh, of course, of course. So, I mean, I think, I think, uh, I mean... Look, in, uh, I, I think it was in the second Lord of the Rings movie, they have GoPro shots in the movie during the chase scene where they're in barrels or whatever. I think it's really important to stress, though, that most of the time when you have like GoPros cut in with things, 
these are these are very short shots. These of are, course, these are not shots that people are going to spending a lot of time fixating not, on. It's like, of course, in, I mean, unless that the whole point of it is the, the GoPro ness of whatever it is you're doing. I, I, I completely agree. But my point is that yeah, for your two three hundred dollar Canon lens that you're going to get to you know like I have the Canon. Uh, it's the one one point f one point four. Uh, 50 millimeter lens and i think it cost me like 350 or something like that and i love that lens and the, it's the nifty 50 yeah yeah it's not the super cheap one that's like 100 bucks and mm-hmm. it's not the one that's 1200 bucks it's the one that's kind of in the middle no no it's a good lens it's, it's a good it, lens it, it's it's totally a fine lens uh, and, when I, and when i'm making stuff that i know i'm just going to be sticking on my vimeo page or something like no, that it's, it's absolutely fine it's delightful but if i'm making something that's like a professional product for a client or something that's going to be going out for some kind of a wider distribution Obviously, you want something that's going to be a little bit better, a little bit more controllable, a little bit more predictable. Colors are going to match better between it and the other lenses in the same set. There are a lot of considerations that you have to go through. Most of those considerations tend to be usability. How usable is this lens? Like how much can a professional actually work with this and get their day done? And a professional crew, how are they going to be able to pull focus how are they going to be able to and when they get into color correction how long is it going to take to match this lens with another lens yeah i mean uh how much distortion yeah. is there going to be there's all there's all these different things that that go along with it that have nothing to do with the fact that it just resolved a a plenty fine plenty sharp image and you were able to put it up on, on a big screen and i will say that i think we've entered a, a point right now where the generation that has just come into discovering some of these lenses um and say like, hey, well, it worked and it's good enough, and I'm moving forward with my two hundred and fifty dollar, my seventy five dollar. I mean, these these very inexpensive lenses, they're missing a real point, which is you actually can't really work the way that someone is expected to work on a real professional production with a lot of these tools. These tools just fail. And what's interesting is that the vintage lenses, some of them have failures too. Like they're very popular now to use old uh, k35 lenses or to use um uh super baltars which are of course made famous by the godfather uh the mechanics in a lot of these lenses are not great and by modern standards they're really tough to work with and do they make sharp images yes but are some of the still lenses that that are you know inexpensive today actually resolving more than these vintage lenses yes but that's that's kind of the point there's a different look with this stuff and that uh this is definitely i felt like been the year of vintage lenses making a comeback what forms the image is the lens the sensor captures it but where that image is coming from is a combination of your imager and your your optic but your optic is really what's creating that image on the at the the sensor level so if you decide that you want to use something that is different you're definitely getting a different look it's not you know your 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 typical sort of thing and i see a lot of that happening right now so speaking of vintage too this is the year that the digital Bolex finally came out. And the digital Bolex is a huge success story as a crowdfunded camera. Agreed. Yeah, it, um, it's amazing. They licensed the the name Bolex and they tried to keep aspects of the original form factor of the Bolex intact so that people could shoot like they would shoot with a Bolex going back into what, the 50s, the 40s? I know you're not a fan of small sensors, but I actually really have a big soft spot for 16. And uh-huh. I love that the digital Bolex has embraced the 16 millimeter format. I have to imagine that they are probably like every camera company planning their next thing. I hope they don't entirely abandon 16. I think 16 is very cool. There's great optics that are available. I myself just bought the Cook S4 16 millimeter lenses. They actually call SK4s. They're gorgeous. It's wonderful stuff. I'm not against 16 on principle. I think if you're making a documentary, small sensor is a much better way to go than, than you don't want to shoot a documentary 
on the 5D Mark II or Agreed. Mark III because you're going to just be hunting. Your your documentary will be about you trying to keep things in focus. And boy, do I see people all the time trying to shoot 0.95 on cameras that, uh, you know, for a, a documentary or shoot on these large formats. And holy crap, the thing's out of focus. I mean, it's, oh, it's yeah. out of focus most of the time. So. Yeah, no, you don't want that. I think that obviously it's a big world and we can hopefully embrace lots of aesthetics. You wouldn't, nobody would say, the Hurt Locker wasn't a good looking movie and that was shot on Super 16. There's obviously a great argument for that. So how buzzworthy would you say has the uh, digital Bolex been? Are people embracing it? Is it getting used a lot? Is it picking up speed? It's just an interesting story because it had so much buzz from the Kickstarter campaign that it maintained that buzz through the release of the actual camera. I have a little bit of inside information on on digital Bolex. I have a little bit of uh, understanding of kind of what they're going to move into next. And I'm very excited about digital Bolex because uh, I had a conversation with one of the principals who assured me that they are in it for the long haul, that this is not just sort of like a a quick flash and they're going to be out. They're really serious about continuing what they've started. And the digital Bolex, I I believe, will continue as much as possible the aesthetic of film. And that is really their their goal for that camera. They could have gone for the cleanest, best image they could, but they didn't want that. They really said, we're going for the aesthetic of film. Yeah. And I think that they have achieved a lot of the look of 16 mil with their small 2K camera. It's really impressive. It's not the cleanest image. It's not the, you know, the best low light camera. It has amazing colors. It has tremendous workflow. It's raw. It The camera is self-sufficient in that it's got storage built in and a battery built in. It it defies the, the rules for most of the other people out there making you know, entry level, inexpensive cameras and that this is an inexpensive entry level cinema camera. Yeah. And it does have certain elements that are a little, you know, but how, how has the, how has the uh, public experience of the digital Bolex been? It seems like it's not been, uh, I I don't hear about it that much, but that doesn't mean anything. They are a small company and I know they've shipped now hundreds of cameras. They're in, they're in the hundreds. I know that people like Matty Libatique has one. Nice. He, he shoots, you know, big movies, Iron Man movies. He's just shot uh, Noah, if I'm not mistaken. He- I think he shot every Darren Aronofsky film except The Wrestler. Mm, okay. And I know that uh, Spike Lee has one. And I know Spike Lee's been working on something, I believe, with that camera. But, nice. Uh, but I know Gus Van Sant's been testing it. And I feel like Gus Van Sant totally... He, I know he's a fan of 16, and this is like a perfect sort of camera for him. It'd be a, you know, I think it'd be great if, if Gus decided that he wanted to use it. So interesting. There's a, a lot of industry people out there right now who are really paying attention to them because the look and aesthetic and feel of 16 with the benefits of digital is a wonderful coming together. And it's it's not much money, and they make a monochrome camera. If you wanted that black and white 16, which all my earliest you know student films were all black and white 16, I really love black and white and reversals, basically what I did. And you can get a reversal look out of the digital Bolex really easy. And you've got a true monochrome camera now that's $4,000. So what, what's the advantage of a monochrome camera versus a color camera where you turn off the color and post? That's a great question. Uh, you have to actually kind of do the test, the Pepsi challenge to see for yourself. But when you are working with monochrome, you get far more information that's actually reaching the sensor, that's reaching at the um, tonality that you're getting in there is not this sort of like faked desaturation. Actually, the best thing, now that you've brought this up, rather than me dance about architecture here, I think what I'm going to have to do is actually take a couple of shots from the uh, from a full color camera and from a monochrome camera and put them up online just so you can actually really see the difference. You think but you can put them in the show notes of uh, this episode? I think so. 
Yeah. We'll put that in the show notes of this episode so you, the listener, can check it out for yourself. Yeah, you can actually see what the difference is between a monochrome camera and a uh, color camera where you've just actually removed the color. So. Yeah, because I know, like, I mean, they, there's a monochrome Alexa, right? There is. And isn't there a monochrome Epic? There is. But the Alexa is a very expensive camera, and it's rental only for the monochrome version. The Epic you can buy, but I think it's 50 dollars So the fact that someone's made a $4,000 monochrome camera to me is just brilliant it's really it's really cool you gotta really have a hard on for black and white to spend 50 50 grand on a camera that only shoots black and white i will tell you there's only i think two in los angeles so there's not a lot of them out there and i think there's a couple in new york and then some in europe but it's like there's not a lot there's not a lot of them out there. i've said it twice already this episode maybe we should call this episode price to rent price to rent yes i think i Uh, I have a blog by that title at one point (laughs) Uh, okay, so um, we talked about lenses. We talked a little bit about cameras. I actually think that yeah, 2015, in some ways, was a year of a camera too. Because... 2014 is the year oh, that we're currently. Crap, you're right. We're not talking about 15. Okay, 2014. Ilya is living in the future. <laughs> Ilya has come back from 2015 to tell us all about what cameras will be like a year from now. Let's Ilya, tell do us the time warp again. Tell us about the 4K Alexa <laughs> that was announced at NAB 2015. <laughs> uh, Okay, going back to 2014. <laughs> Son of a bitch. Uh, AJA, a company who has never, they've never made a camera before. Didn't stop Black Magic. Go didn't, on. Didn't stop Black Magic. Didn't stop Digital Bullocks. Didn't stop, you know, everyone who's a Didn't camera, stop Red when the Red One came out. Everybody who is. Look, everybody has to make their first camera at some point. That's right. And so AJA. When are you making your first camera? Oh, geez. <laughs> <laughs> okay. AJA, shipping a camera, I believe. By the time this podcast airs, it should be shipping, so we should have uh, their camera, and that's going to be very interesting. It's definitely got a different look than cameras out there, a global shutter. So this is a camera that was that was announced in April at NAB 2014, mm-hmm. and it's starting to ship now. It's the AJA camera. It's $9,000, correct? That's right. And it records to what? Apple ProRes. Is it recording onto like an SSD? It's recording to its own SSD made by AJA. So proprietary correct hardware and it and what size sensor super 35 super 35 and you said global shutter global shutter so maximum ISO is unknown interesting yes they've they've not actually said native or native or maximum ISO yet but I think it'll be a surprise for all of us when the camera ships it is a little bit of a red flag it's a little bit of like if you if you're not saying what that is, then, you know, could you speculate what you think it might be? Or I I don't want you to embarrass yourself and say it's going to be 40,000 and it comes out and it's a max at 800 or something. But you know what? I I actually don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to say. Um, What kind of dynamic range are they saying? If they're not telling us what the ISO, can we know what the dynamic range is? They're saying it's at least 12 stops. Okay. And uh, there is a raw recording option, not internally. There's a high speed option, I believe 120 frames, something like that. It's uh, significantly less weight than the Ursa. It's about half the weight. Bigger than a bread box? How big is this sucker? This sucker is uh, about a bread box size. Okay. It's, a, it's an on the shoulder camera. A bunch of different companies have already uh, lined up to make third party accessories. There'll be multiple lens mounts available, but it ships with a PL mount. It is kind of positioning itself as poor man's Amira, which is interesting. And Amira is getting some real competition too, because just in the last week or so, the 4k Vericam is shipping and the 4k Vericam is a $55,000 camera and it has the cleanest 5,000 ISO I have ever seen. 
if you're going to stare into your crystal ball and you're going to put on your, your, you know, Johnny Carson-esque turban. <laughs> Karnak. My, Karnak. My, my Karnak exactly. turban. Your Karnak turban. If you were going to, uh, you know, try and predict who's going to be nominated for an Academy Award for Best Cinematography or win perhaps a, an ASC Award, where do you fall? What, what, was, uh, what was a big impact for you in 2014? Well, it wasn't a movie. That, I didn't love necessarily the movie, but uh, the cinematography is, uh, is undeniable. It was Birdman. Uh, and I think that that's probably going to be something that's going to dominate the conversation. And I feel like it might even win all these awards and Oscars and, and all that other stuff, because in a lot of ways, it's like the perfect middle brow movie and it's the perfect return for um, Michael Keaton, like as a star vehicle. But the cinematography in that movie is just unbelievably phenomenal. And so the cinematography by Emmanuel Lubezki, you know, who's <laughs> quickly becoming probably one of the one of the preeminent cinematographers in the world you know, between gravity and this and, you know, probably my favorite thing he ever did, Children of Men, uh, you know, like that guy sort of can do no wrong and he did an amazing job. But if I was to say what my personal favorite would be, it is Nightcrawler, which was shot by Robert Elswit, uh, who is best known, I think, for working with P.T. Anderson on like pretty much every amazing P.T. Anderson movie. And I feel like uh, Nightcrawler, it's like I feel like you and I are are both unwitting extras in this movie. Like the whole movie is shot on these streets that, you know, like it's like, Hey, I've, I've used that gas pump that Jake Gyllenhaal is using right there. But, um, Oh, it's absolutely spot the location in Los Angeles. And in fact, the police station at the very, very end, that's right across the street from hot rod cameras. I'm like, I, every day when I, when I park my car, it is, that is, that's direct. That's the Hollywood, that's the Hollywood police station. Holy (laughs) shit. That's amazing. Um, but I think that the cinematography in that movie and that movie is almost in a sense a movie about cinematography because it's about a guy who's shooting stuff on a camera Mm -hmm. and uh dan gilroy and robert elswit like very cleverly figured out that like they they would always show the the, like you would always see the guy holding the camera and you could sort of see the flip out monitor or whatever but they would never like fill the screen with what the camera was seeing uh well and sorry let me back up for people who haven't seen nightcrawler it's about a guy who uh is a stringer for uh local news in los angeles and he's filming, uh, basically sneaking in and filming crime scenes and then selling that footage to uh, the news. And so it's a very ghoulish occupation. And Jake Gyllenhaal is like part sociopath, part 1980s inspirational speaker. <laughs> that's a great that's a great way to describe him. That's yeah, that's that's, that's, re- that's really true. There is a, there there is that element of inspirational, motivational speaker. And, so, yeah. and then and I, I hadn't. I hadn't thought of that until you just said it right now, but uh, I really enjoyed the movie and I think you're absolutely right on, uh, I think you're absolutely right that it's, 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 it's it's just one of the best looking movies of the year. I also think that Birdman, if I had to bet money on it, I'd say Birdman will probably win some awards that, that movie is, uh, is spectacular. And there was a lot of talk about Interstellar, like that Interstellar was going to be this this thing that and, and I got to say, you know, Interstellar is really remarkable for one thing. If you got to go see it uh, in IMAX and got to go see it on or 70 millimeter film, this might be the last 70 millimeter shot film you ever see in a theater. Not if Christopher Nolan has anything to say about it. Well, he might not have anything to say about it. I mean, we don't, yeah. we don't, we don't know what's going to happen. And, uh, now I, that- I want to keep the film projection alive just because that means Quentin Tarantino will keep making movies. Cause he keeps saying when he can't project it on, in film, he's going to stop making movies. Really? That's what he, I, well, we'll see. But. Yeah. You know what? I, I don't know. I, I think that, 
I think that there's there's something to be said about the the film projection experience. It certainly is different than the digital projection experience. Uh, I was part of that whole uh, DTC, um, or sorry, ETC uh, testing that went on in the early days of the Christie projectors over at, yeah. at the Hollywood Boulevard. And um, I, I will tell you that it has come a long way in a short time. And digital projection? Digital projection. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, well, I was a projectionist for like six years. And so I, you know, I'm a big fan of, of theatrical 35 millimeter projection, but I sort of feel like now when I'm looking at a movie to see if it's digital or not, well, actually at this point, it's almost always going to be digital anyway. But if I'm watching a movie and I'm trying to figure out if it's digital or film, the only way I can tell is to look for gate weave and dust because it's just getting harder and harder to tell. Also, this was the year that studios stopped shipping film prints to most of their theaters most of the stuff it's much more difficult and that's moment that's a momentous thing that's like a landmark moment things have changed so fast just in the last five six years that the next five or six years it wouldn't surprise me at all if it's more changing and i mean never before has the entertainment industry particularly the movie industry the motion picture industry if i really want to be formal had such a radical change in such a short period of time with the technology that's being used and i would include the transition to sound, the transition to color. Uh, they've never had this much change in such a short period of time. So yeah. it's uh, it's going to be very interesting. You are g- truly going to be able to have a Macintosh in your bedroom, and a very inexpensive camera. And if you have the production wherewithal and the smarts and the ability able to produce something with maybe, let's say, $10,000, $15,000 worth of like hardware investment, that will be on par with a movie that would win an Academy Award. So who is our featured guest this week? Uh, our guest is awesome. Her name is Jendra Jarnigan, and she's a uh, DP who comes out of the New York indie scene from the 90s, which to me, I couldn't steer her into telling me more about it if, if I had tried. I want to know all about the 90s indie scene because so much of uh, I think what informs even filmmaking today comes out of what was going on in New York in the 1990s. Then she becomes a technologist, gets involved with Red, as she mentioned in her war story last episode, and now synthesized everything that she's learned from all these places and is moving forward as as a DP. And uh, I just think Gendra is absolutely fascinating and has a lot of great insights that people are going to love. Gendra is amazing, and I don't have anything to add to that. So here we go. Gendra Jarnigan. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. I'm here at Hot Rod Cameras with cinematographer Jendra Jarnigan. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. If you could just kind of start by giving me a little bit of your background, how you got into shooting, how you got into visual arts. I always loved storytelling. I was a big bookworm as a kid, um, and I also loved photography. My grandmother gave me a camera for gifts when I was six. She gave me a Super 8 camera before I was old enough to use it. And it was like, my parents would use it, even though it was mine. It was kind of weird that they gave it to me before I could use it. But it was always very clear, this is hers, this is for her. Which I think is pretty cool in retrospect. But I look at Super 8 family films and I was like, you know, three or four or something mm-hmm. when we when we got the camera. So I always loved taking pictures. I always loved stories. I never really thought about putting the two together And when I was in middle school, I was invited to a gifted and talented extracurricular arts program where you get to spend one day a month outside of school going to learn about something else. And one of the choices was video production, 
which in 1986 was pretty unusual. Now everyone's got cameras and Final Cut and everything in, in their junior high and high school. But back then, like, I'd never even thought about video production. <laughs> so, and then there were other stuff on the forum. I don't even remember what they were, but that's what sounded the most interesting to me. So I checked a box and sealed my fate without even realizing it. Um, so I show up the first day and it's this... Um, public access TV studio, Cox Cable in uh, Johnston, Rhode Island. My school is in Cranston where I grew up, but that was where the closest public access was. And it was control rooms and sound stages and patch bays and monitors and pedestals and all these things that were so cool and exciting to a 12-year-old <laughs> that, you know, until then I what had been presented to me as what you what do you want to be when you grow up was doctor lawyer fireman astronaut yeah i never thought about you know filmmaker tv producer any of that kind of stuff well and public access is like a lost art now like we don't have public access anymore i mean i guess we have youtube instead of public access but it's weird to actually think. i think it's out there um really? yeah i mean i know that my father-in-law in massachusetts took like a public access he had to take the class to get their certificate in order to be able to go in and use the studio recently um within the past 10 years i think really and in new york there's a dc tv and there are these resources hmm. out there that do still I think fulfilled the original mandate of cable TV providing access to the community for mm -hmm. people to do community-based Now they just hand you your iPhone and say, hey, go shoot some crap on your iPhone. And <laughs> Not you, sure exactly what they do now. I haven't there's been There's iMovie on your iPhone. You can cut it however yeah. you want. But seeing that world that day opened my eyes to a whole, you know, um, my imagination went wild. And, and I think it's interesting that I didn't see it and say, I want to work in a TV studio, I saw it and my mind immediately jumped to movies. Like, I want to be a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. Even though I wasn't in a film studio and it wasn't films, that made me realize movies, which I loved, stories, which I loved, image making, which I loved, that people actually did that. Like, seeing the TV studio is like, oh, people do this for a living. There are people here and these are their jobs and that's what they do and they create things and... <laughs> So I, that day, I knew I wanted to be a filmmaker. Had you done some little Super 8 No. Projects? I mean, my family shot, you know, documenting family vacation kind of things, but I didn't do, you know, like you hear about filmmakers, you know, making little stop motions with their action figures. And mm -hmm. I mean, I did that a little bit later once I got into it, but I hadn't done that. That hadn't occurred to me until I saw the, the TV studio. It's a good thing I turned out to be good at it because when <laughs> I saw it that day, I was so excited about it. I mean, I guess they're related that you have a passion for something yeah. because it feels right to you. And I stuck with that and, and I did have a talent for it. And I got a lot of positive encouragement from the mentor you know, that ran that program. What I, kind of stuff were you doing? We would write scripts. We would do shot lists for three camera stuff. We I was mostly studio stuff. Um, I... I think I tried to do a location shoot. I ended up creating a uh, independent study for myself in the high school, mm -hmm. where I got them to buy Super VHS cameras and a Super VHS and an editing, um, <laughs> you know, cuts tape to tape, cuts yeah, yeah. only editing deck, and that was all my 
asking for it and like going to the guidance counselors and saying, I want to pursue this and we don't have this stuff and can we get this stuff? And what kind of um, stuff were you shooting? Was it more like documentary kind of stuff? Was it more? Yeah, I, I was mostly just shooting whatever was going on, like the school plays and the dance troops, you know, performances and the community events of the school community. Other than the structure that was in the video program at the cable station, which did continue through high school, I wasn't really writing mm-hmm. anything. I, it's funny. I never wanted to be a writer. I was never good at writing. Even when I went to NYU film school, which is very focused on writer directors and you have to make your projects, you have to write your own projects or yeah. at least come up with the adaptation. And if you're not a writer, like I always felt like my films in film school sucked <laughs> because I didn't like my ideas good enough because I'm not I'm not a good idea originator. I can be really creative once I am given a starting out point to get the wheels turning and to collaborate and bounce ideas back and forth. And cl- like, I'm definitely a DP and not not mm-hmm. a director. At NYU, they didn't have a DP track specifically? Not for undergrad. The grad program does. If you knew you wanted to be a DP or you knew you wanted to be a writer or you knew you wanted to be a sound person, like you could self-choose the classes that were specific to that interest, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't a track the way that it is in the NYU grad program and in some some of the other film schools. But I knew I wanted to be a filmmaker since I was 12. And then between 12 and 15, being involved in those programs and pursuing that as an interest, it took till about age 15 for me to fully understand what the cinematographer did. Up until then, I thought I wanted to be a director. You know, the only exposure to like real filmmaking in Hollywood was sort of the behind the scenes stuff you see on TV at that time. We didn't have DVDs and VHSs at my video store didn't have special features with making of featurettes. And so in all those making of things, the only person you ever saw speaking about process besides the actors was the director. So I thought the director did everything and was responsible for everything. Once I learned about who did what, I was kind of surprised to find out that the DP was so specifically, I guess, powerful in, in terms yeah. of you th- you would think that that might be the director's domain. Once I learned that distinction, I was pretty clear that I wanted to be a DP and not a director, that all those things that the DP's in charge of are the things that I was interested in and the areas where my own talents did lie. And then when I went to undergrad film school, I went in believing I wanted to be a DP, but open to the idea that I actually had to do both before I could make up my mind for myself, trying out directing and DPing to see if I was right. And within the first semester where you're doing concrete production, I was like, yep, I don't want to be a director. What what were the things about directing that you were like, eh, not not for me? At least at NYU, directing was very tied to writing Mm -hmm. and I'm not a writer. Now that I know enough about the process, what doesn't interest me about being a director is taking a project and sticking with it for two years. Whether you wrote the script or not, giving notes for rewrites to help shape the story to be the one that you want to tell, to casting, to distribution, to publicity, to now it's DIY distribution that you'd need to, if you've invested your time in a film, you of course want to make sure that it gets seen and that turns out to be two years of your life. Mm-hmm. There's no project that I've ever wanted to dedicate two years of my life to one project at the expense of everything else. I would rather shoot three to five you know, features a year instead of one feature every two years. I've worked with a lot of people who are like, oh, you'd make a good director. Why don't you, you know, do you want to direct? And I was like, no, that, that's mm-hmm. pretty much the main reason why. But also just the visual, the, the visual is the way my brain mm-hmm. works, the way that I think about things. 
um, I did direct a music video once. Someone offered it to me as a to be a director DP, and it was a very visual concept type of thing. So it kind of worked well, and I had some fun with the casting and the wardrobe and the things that I don't usually get to do as yeah, as yeah. a DP. But in terms of a narrative and the drama and the psychology of working with actors and that kind of stuff, I, I'm sure I could get good at that if I focused my energies on developing yeah. that side of myself but it just doesn't interest me the way that the visual and visual storytelling does well let me ask you getting into the, the meat of what you do on a day-to-day basis how do you like to work with a director like if it, it, what, what's the best relationship I know that you have to probably adapt yourself to however each director works but if you could make the perfect director for you to work with mm-hmm. what what part of the job would be theirs what part of the job would be yours I'm a very strong believer that a movie is made in prep I cannot get enough prep. If a director will give me weeks or months of their time, for me to get to know their vision that I can get inside their head is, you know, I could take an infinite amount of time Mm -hmm. to to get to know them and their story and the way that they want to tell their story better and better and better. I would say the main thing, if if I were creating a director for me, mm-hmm. um, would be someone that believed in the importance of prep and that would do a lot of prep, that would give me a lot of time in prep. A lot of times you're working on a production where the DP has shot a lot more films than the director has. You know, the director only gets to make, you know, one or two or three films. Yeah. And by the time you're getting hired to shoot those films as a DP, you better have a lot of films under your belt or you're not going to get the job. So I have more experience than most of the directors. And most directors naively believe that they're going to spend all this time shot listing in like the the week to five days before shooting, not realizing that, you know, they're going to be being pulled in a million directions with all the last minute fires that they need to put out with, you know, oh, the schedule changed. We lost this actor. We need to recast and bring this person in. And, you know, oh, this, uh, you know, you can't afford to do the scene this way and we need to rewrite this or we lost this location. And it's like... The director's never available. I've worked on so many things where directors intend to do the shot lists much, much later Mm -hmm. in the process, and they never get done because other things, you know, become a priority. Like, okay, you could make a movie without a shot list if you showed up and winged it. You can't make a movie if you didn't have a key actor or you don't have a location, and those things obviously take priority. I think that, you know, when I was starting out, I had a belief, too, that, like, every shot was the director's design. And then when you get into the world, you realize that that's impractical. It's just not practical at all. I've often been asked, do I like to work with directors who have a strong vision or would I prefer to work with a director who gives me free reign and lets me do whatever I want to do? And I think people asking the question often assume that the DP would choose the latter, that the DP would choose to be given the opportunity to do whatever they want. And I found the opposite to be true. When a director is very visual and very specific and gives me specific ideas and specific challenges, I'm motivated to rise to the occasion that I want to give them what they want, come up with a way to do it. And it makes me think about things in a more creative way or that sort of synergy and collaboration pushes me that I grow more as an artist Mm -hmm. when I have directors who are specific or maybe have a style that's different than my own that is my responsibility to adapt to their vision and to their style. And by letting that into my way of thinking, expands my way of thinking, and then I grow as an artist. Yeah, I think I do my best work when I have a very visual director. Oh, cool. o- otherwise, if they're just going to let me do it my way, um, and I'm 
busy managing a million things between time management and lighting setups and shot selection and everything else. I'm usually just being honest, knowing myself, inclined to do things the way that occurs to me as the simplest way or the most efficient way or the way I've done it before or the automatic way, the sensible way. You know, I don't want to say the easy way out, but I'll do what comes natural to me versus Mm -hmm. being pushed to make it better. Interesting. Yeah. Well, and and, I mean, maybe this kind of dovetails into what we were talking about earlier uh, before we started recording. Maybe this dovetails into talking about second unit, which you just did second unit. Uh, You were talking about a project that you just did second unit on and I just directed second unit on a project. Uh, for the first time, I'd never done it before. And I think that that goes with what you're saying, because I feel like I have a style in a way that I want to shoot it. But when the director would come to me and say, like, I want a shot like blah, like it actually took a lot of pressure off of me. Like, OK, I know the shot you want. And now let me make that. But like when somebody comes at you and I think that as a director, usually I'm the one who's having to figure these things out. So a second unit, I was having to fit into somebody else's universe. And I think it's a little bit like what you're talking about where it's like somebody comes to me with a visual idea and says, execute this, then I can apply all of my knowledge to executing that the best way I would execute it as if it were my idea. That's what being a DP is like. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. Another question that I've asked a lot of DPs, even though the person who initially put this in my head was a a DP I've worked with named Fraser Bradshaw, who lives up Mm -hmm. in San Francisco. I actually asked him this question. He was like, I think you misunderstood me, but I still think it's a valid question. And that's that I believe that some DPs come from a lighting background and some DPs come from a camera background. And as a creative process question, I kind of want to know, do you believe that you figure out a composition? Do you figure out a composition and light into that composition? Or do you light the scene and then find the frame within your lighting? Or is that completely irrelevant? I think it's an interesting question because on set, on the day, I will probably, at least for the master, set up the shot and light to the shot but in my brain in my visualizing in my prep in my conceiving the movie as a whole and what scenes are going to be what moods and what colors and what styles I'm thinking about the lighting Mm -hmm. I mean and and the way that I'm visualizing it I'm visualizing the space in the room as a world Mm -hmm. for the scene I'm not necessarily thinking about the shots of the scene. I mean, when you're thinking about it as lighting, are you also thinking about like, I'd like to do this with a wide angle lens or I want everything to be looking really compressed or is a handheld or is there a specific style? They're, they're interrelated. I mean, I kind of think about them separately and, and I probably like when I'm reading a script and unless there's something really distinct in the description or it's an action scene or unless it's the kind of thing that a certain kind of camera use, whether that's camera movement or wide shots or extreme close-ups comes to mind by what you're reading. I'm usually not thinking about shots when I'm reading, but I am thinking about the look of the scene in terms of tone, contrast, color in a lighting mm-hmm. kind of way. Does that make sense? It makes sense. And it's something that I definitely want to go into more detail about. So uh, to me, the shots come later, mm -hmm. like once we're shot listing with the director and we've seen the locations and things are, we know the schedule that you often have to back into to be like, okay, we have to get this done in this amount of time, or we're going to choose our battles and say, this scene is really important to have these elaborate moving shots that are time consuming, or this scene needs a lot of coverage. And this is one that's priority to take a lot of time, whereas we'll make it 
up on this scene, which can be done in a simple way. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of stuff. So what is your process? If, if you have a process, some people who I've talked to are like, I don't, I couldn't really quantify it, but like, what is your process? I give you a script and do you talk to the director first, but like, what is your process in terms of looking at a script and breaking it out into a look and a feel and a practical approach that you're going to use with cameras and lights and lenses and blah, blah, blah. The first time I read the script, I don't want to be thinking about cinematography. I just want to be thinking about story and how I want to read it with the flow of reading it where I'm not stopping my read or stopping my thoughts to make notes uh, or even to reflect deeper on a visual, developing a visual idea at that time. I just want to read it all the way through, see how does it make me feel, how is it, you know, is it well written, is it Mm. funny, is it emotional, go with the emotions, go with the humor and experience it as almost like a viewer audience member watching the movie without thinking about how it was made. So the first time I read it, I just read it for that, read it for story, make up my mind about how, you know, what I like about it. Of course, a few things will usually stick out to me is like, oh, cool night exterior. Like, oh, fuck, how are we going to do this scene where he shoots, you know, he shoots the guy and we don't have any money, you know, like (laughs) like certain things will stick out. But otherwise, I just try and read it. Then I'll read it. I, I try to read the script twice before the interview so that the second time I read it, I can start formulating concrete ideas and making notes of visual ideas or potential visual references that I have something concrete to talk about in the interview. Um, Then once, I don't like to take that too far until I've spoken to the director to see what direction they want to go or, or if they are even the kind of director that has a clear, you know, visual direction off the bat that they're ready to start telling me about early for me to start thinking about it, you know, with their input Mm -hmm. right, right off the bat. So then once I have some feedback from the director that informs that, usually by then I'll have some knowledge of the budget to know, should I even be visualizing crane shots when I, <laughs> when I read this? Or, wow, this all felt like Steadicam to me and, you know, the you know, there's no way we can... I don't want to say there's no way we can afford it because, again, everything's about choosing your battles. So you could say, okay, I read this movie and the most important thing about it is X. Mm-hmm. And then let's allocate our resources towards X and then I'll be willing to let some things go. And oftentimes the budget's already been done by then and I end up doing a lot of robbing Peter to pay Paul on the budget to say, okay, you didn't budget for this, but this is really important to me and the director. Where have you budgeted for that I can sacrifice to get the what we need to get these things that have become a priority to us? Back to process. Then once once I get the job... It's really hard for me to go too far in visualizing and breaking things down until I've seen the locations. A lot of times people are like, oh, can you give us an equipment list? And it's like the film is not coming together in a concrete way that makes any sense in reality. It just exists in five different people's mind's eye Mm -hmm. that are going to start to get aligned once we have a real space and a real location. So once we have locations, um, I like to take a lot of pictures a lot of people rush location scouts. If I'm a lot, if I'm involved in location selection, like we have a few key ones to pick from and you know weigh in on the pros and cons of these different locations, then usually that's quick. And then once we decide on one, I want to go back with the director and do director scouts before the tech scouts. I've done a lot of tech scouts where the directors 
don't even want to show up because it or think that there's no point in them being there because it's all just me talking to Grip and Electric and probably we've already gone through it with the production designer at that point, which would be the only reason that the director would need to be there. And then the AD and UPM are looking for holding and loading and logistical, you know, stuff. Mm-hmm. But by that point, I want to know, I want to have spent time in the space with the director. How are we going to use this space? How are you going to block these scenes? Which directions are we going to look in? Which directions do I need to light for? If we're shooting in an apartment and it's a great apartment, except that this entire wall over here is covered in mirrors, you know, are we going to make the choice to avoid looking that way for the entire staging and blocking and angles? Or do we need to deal with that mirror by putting furniture in front of it and covering it up? And production designers love me because I'll get specific with them about the shit that they don't need to do by making concrete trying whenever possible to make concrete decisions with the director in advance so that they're not doing so that art department's not doing extra work for the directions that we're never going to see because obviously it's their job that they need to be prepared that we could see mm-hmm. anywhere if we haven't told them that they're not going to um, so I, I did one uh, web series with a production designer like just loved me left and right because I was often, you know, saving him so much work by knowing what information to share with him, yeah. you know, to to save him the work. I'm very production friendly that way in That's... terms of thinking about all the departments and what communicate, you know, interdepartmental communication. And so when you're saying that you like to have a, a long period of prep, are you is this the kind of stuff that you want to spend all your prep time on? The, the scouts are important. Yeah, a lot of ads will. Uh, I've found don't necessarily plan for that. I have to ask for them. Or Mm -hmm. sometimes they've made location agreements where it's like, oh, we can't really get back in there, you know, until this date. And I'm like, we need more time in there. Um, Have have you ever scouted Nellis that uh, it it was like the juvenile detention center out in Whittier before? Mm -mm. Oh, man, they're so weird. (laughs) Um, They really are. I probably won't keep this in here. Maybe I will. Who knows? (laughs) They're not listening to podcasts. It's like, great. It's got a jail set. And I mean, it's it, it was a juvenile detention center from the 1800s. And so it's got like like where they shot the, all the jail stuff for Hancock mm-hmm. was all in the jail that's there. And it it looks for all the world like a real jail. And then there's like two churches and a gymnasium and some suburban neighborhoods and stuff. And you see it in movies all the time. But when you go there to scout it, they have like a preliminary scout and they just push you through it. They're like, uh, yeah, you get to come back here. And, you know, when you're paying our site rep, then you can take your time. And mm-hmm. that's really what it's about. So it's like you're there for like two minutes looking at the gymnasium and you're like, well, I want to go over and see. And. You know, I've had to say like, well, you know, if I don't come over here and take all these pictures, then the ad agency isn't going to approve it and we're not going to be able to come back anyway. Mm -hmm. So give me some more time. But they also like set you up to scout with like massive groups of people who are also scouting. (laughs) And it's so weird. I mean, like their locations are great and they're really nice people when you get to shoot. They just don't get it. They don't get what you need to. Yeah. 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 Because yeah, because you're gonna have to go like in there and find all these angles. And a lot of times I'm working for a client who's not even on not even in the same state. They're in New York or something. So uh, anyway, I'm sorry. I digress. But I wanted to digress the whole thing and talk about after you get out of NYU, Mm -hmm. what is the transition from NYU student? Like, how do you get to shoot? I mean, I don't know what size your class was. I went to a school that had a really small class. 
of maybe 20, it was maybe 30 people per class. And out of them, maybe four or five of them are still working in any way. So I know that there's like huge attrition in film mm-hmm. school. People do it because it's fun. But then, you know, years later you go back and it's like, they're not doing it. So how do you, how do you end up staying in it? And you were in New York. Did you stay in New York right mm-hmm. then? Yeah. So tell me how you, how you transitioned to DPing at that point. When I finished NYU, which was 1995, there was no HD. There was no DV. Avid had just come into the school that year and people were starting to use it. But basically to, to, to shoot a student film, you needed to finish on film. You needed to make an answer print and cut your negative and do a sound mix and do titles and basically put a lot of extra expense into the finishing. Now, are you paying for all your own stuff there? The students who are making the films, the directors Mm -hmm. of the films are paying for their own films. Mm -hmm. So in order to graduate, all you had to do was get it to a rough cut with a work print and show it to your teachers and that completed your assignment for the grade. So a lot of people, you know, you you think your student film is going to be great, but then you do it and it didn't turn out that great. You learned a lot, but it's not like such a great film that you want to go spend an extra two or $3,000 to finish it, you know, to make a print to show it at the student film festival. Mm -hmm. So if the filmmaker decided not to do that, which most of them didn't, then they never transferred it to video because we didn't have video daily. So we were cutting on (sighs) Steenbeck's. So as a DP shooting in that era, you didn't get a copy of 90% of what you shot. Uh. So so when you graduated from film school, you didn't have a reel. You, you could but have if had, you had it, it would have been like beta SP anyway. Well, I mean, well that it, was standard for the period, so yeah. that didn't that wouldn't yeah. have hurt you. It was three quarter, but um, yeah. <laughs> but getting out of school, you you didn't have a reel like you do now. Like you, there are yeah. people getting out of film school who are talented, who have gotten to shoot all the films, then even the ones with budgets and have like really impressive looking reels getting out of film school. And that just wasn't the reality in, in 1995. They, prob- they probably have like impressive reels before they go to film school because yeah. they've been shooting on a DSLR since yeah. they were in middle school. Yeah. Th- that happens. Yeah. Definitely. No, I feel your pain. Cause I was, that, that's exactly the same time I was going to film school and, and I did my thesis film. We edited on a nonlinear system. So I had to transfer all of it, but like almost nobody did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so nobody transferred their film to video. I didn't get a copy of anything. I didn't have anything to show when I got out of film school. I, rem- I remember being in film school, having shot a senior thesis film and interviewing for another senior thesis film and having to borrow the print from the first filmmaker that I had shot for and like getting a room with the projector, oh booking God. a room with the projector to project the film that I had shot to show the other person who was considering me to shoot the story is giving me a headache their film and yeah people don't realize you know very different world back then oh no yeah you meet people who started in the last five to ten years and they cannot imagine any of like they'll, they'll say things like i want to shoot film one day i'm like yeah you really don't <laughs> you want to have shot film like you uh yeah if you'd like to spend you know three hundred dollars for every 10 minutes of raw footage film mm-hmm. is for you so when i got out of school you couldn't just start working as a DP. You had to work as a, a gaffer or an AC or Which an track electrician. did you think? I took the gaffer track. I did not have a proclivity for focus pulling. Being a camera assistant did not interest me in terms of being a, a gearhead and all the bits and bobs and, and that kind of stuff. I just gravitated towards lighting and the artistry of it and, and the fact that as an electrician and working under other gaffers and other DPs every day 
that you were working on anything, you were learning more. You were learning new ways of doing things yeah. through experience, through your exposure to other people. Whereas, you know, you couldn't be a first AC and be like, I'm going to try loading the film differently today and see how that works out. Um, Extra loop. So I, I found it more creative knowing I wanted to be a DP, being a gaffer and being an electrician, that that was a continual development and continual growth that would, you know, interested me as I was doing it, but in the benefit of my development as a DP. But you were on that track. So so from the moment that you graduated college, you're like, mm-hmm. I'm going to be a DP. The way I'm going to pursue it is I'm going to get into the electrical department yep. and learn how to light. This further develops my theory because even though you had started shooting, you spent so much time lighting. And yet when you're reading a script, you're thinking of the shots. Am I crazy? Am I, am I getting it backwards? Oh. No, I'm thinking, I'm probably thinking more of the lighting than the shots. Okay, then I'm wrong. And I will. Well, I mean, I think I of the said. shots when the shots are the thing that come to the forefront when you're reading it it depends on the scene you Mm -hmm. know some scenes are written in a way or the content or the drama of that scene lends itself to being shot in a certain when i say shot in a certain way i mean the shots yeah whereas every scene even if it's a dialogue scene with two people sitting down has your lighting choices that are going to evoke the mood and tone and color palette of that scene yeah that's how to shoot that is not going to jump out at me when i read it versus you know something with a car chase or a fight scene or an argument or makes sense so you stayed in new york correct i stayed in new york i uh, get into the whole new york la thing as a separate point of conversation no, but, but i'll stay on track as the as but, the, but my you, career trajectory but you're in new york in mm-hmm. the in the late 90s mid, mm-hmm. mid to late 90s which is like the boom of independent film in new york mm-hmm. is kind of the epicenter of that mm-hmm. tell me what it must have been like to be there at that time I didn't know any different because I didn't, I hadn't left New York yet. So Mm -hmm. I didn't know that it was a boom and I hadn't lived through another period yet. So I didn't know that it was a boom. I just thought this is, this is what it's like to freelance in film is that there's always stuff going on. And it was very seasonal. It was very reliably seasonal until 9-11. 9-11 fucked up everything Mm -hmm. um, in term, but it, it used to be like we, we bought I got married in 1999 and we registered for a gift registry for our wedding for a whole bunch of winter camping gear because we liked to camp and the winter was the time of year that we actually had free time when Mm -hmm. we weren't either shooting or focusing our efforts on trying to get jobs to be shooting to be like, oh, there's never anything going on in the winter anyway. That'll be the time that we go do our recreational stuff and our travel stuff. And it was very reliably seasonal in New York up until 9-11. And does your husband do this kind of stuff as well? Yeah, my husband is a steady cam operator. Oh, uh, do you two work together a lot? A few times a year. Uh, he, well, I say steady cam operator, you know, slash A or B camera operator. So he works full time, mm-hmm. long term on TV shows and big movies. He just did a Liam Neeson action movie, Run All Night. He was the B camera operator full time. Nice. Uh, he's done a lot of TV shows. So he's often booked up for five or nine months at a time and then when i have something to shoot that does need steady cam he's very often not available hmm. so um <laughs> interesting having two camera people in the same house my wife is also a director and people are like how does that work out and we've actually worked on projects together so it- i've had a lot of people ask me oh what's it like to work with their husband or sort of with the assumption that they could never envision themselves working in a professional capacity with their spouse mm-hmm. But that's how we met. Like we met on a set. He was the DP and I was the gaffer. And we were so in sync and we worked so well together and we got along so well 
that we were interested in each other and, and started dating. And we all, we've always worked well together. Back when I was not yet a full-time DP, um, and when he was DPing more before he became such a, a big established operator that he f- chose to focus on that, he was also a you know independent low-budget DP back in the day. I was gaffing for him on this, you know, corporate video commercial thing. And like two days into the job, you know, the client or somebody or maybe one of the talent was like, it's like, oh, you guys, you know, work really well together. You must work together a lot. And we're like, oh, yeah, we're married. (laughs) (laughs) So people could tell that we, you know, had a synergy and completed each other's sentences. As someone who spent virtually no time in New York in my life, I imagine, uh, I imagine the independent film scene in New York in the late 90s being like, you know, France during the New Wave or Italy during, <laughs> you know, the rise of the neorealists or something. It, like, it is when I got into the union because oh, really? there was so much work. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny because I just imagine like all these like grungy filmmakers with, you know, unkept beards and sock hats running around and making great art on the mean streets of Manhattan all day long, every day of their lives. Well, in 1998, there was so much work going on and there was not enough people to fill mm-hmm. all the crew positions on all the jobs happening so that's how i got into the union is that the union started allowing people who were not yet in the union to work mm-hmm. you know on the on the productions I, I had joined the union in new england um where i had grown up because it was easier to get in there than it was to get in in new york like but you could work in you in new york if you were in the new england not yeah. yet until this situation arose. One, uh, basically, once it was so busy in 1998 that they didn't have enough people to fill all the jobs, Local 52 said to all the surrounding regions, if you have members who are willing to you know, put themselves up and work, the, work as a local in New York, we've got jobs for you. And of course, I was actually living in New York, mm-hmm. but that's how I got to start working Local 52 as a Local 481 member basically on permit as a sister union. And then once I started working 52, I met enough people in 52 that when I took the the vote, enough people knew who I was that I got in on the first try. During this period of time when you're gaffing and you're working up to being a DP, obviously you're working with a lot of other DPs. Can you talk about some of the DPs that you worked with, some of the tricks of the trade that you picked up or things you learned or good habits, whatever that you picked up from them as you went along? Yeah, I learned a lot about uh, lighting women by working on Sex and the City. Um, <laughs> obviously. Yeah. So I learned, I learned some t- tricks of the trade there, like not just eye lights, but sort of fill lights that fill the facial features. They don't look like a light source. They're so soft yeah. that they, they're not directional. So you still have a directional light that is your key that feels like a lit room or wh- whatever you're trying to accomplish with your lighting style. But then you have this soft sort of fill level exposure of a light that's close that's basically a beauty light so it it that show did a lot of beauty lighting like you would do in a makeup commercial but it wasn't with the key lights so it didn't look totally flat Hmm. all the time so it still looked like it had character and drama and whatnot by the use of the key lights but then they were sneaking in beauty lights at the same time to, to have everyone looking their best so so which dps are shooting that that you're working with there was always two dps it Uh was a alternating two dp show john thomas was consistently on the show as one of those dps from beginning to end at beginning was mike spiller was one of the dps he's a director now terry stacy was one of the dps 
Uh, Florian Ballhaus was one of the DPs. Hmm. Uh, so I was on the show um, for from season the end of season two through to the end. I, I never worked full time. I was always a day player. At times, I was more like a full time day player. But it was always being an electrician was always a side job for me as I was working on my DP career. And the beauty light thing that you're talking about, actually, when I was looking at all the stuff on your reel, I think I can see what you're talking about in that I'm trying to figure out how to put it into words, but it was like the the flesh tones, the the skin of the people in the stuff that was on your reel and all I saw is the stuff that's on your website, but everything kind of had a, a radiance to it, but I couldn't put my finger on it like it looked very naturally lit it didn't it didn't look lit lit but it felt very like the, the people just looked really great and it's Thank hard you. to it's hard to describe it exactly. that's a really good way to describe it because people ask me who haven't seen my work like that you meet people networking and whatnot like so what's your style how would you describe your style and i'd say a beautified naturalism oh yeah well that does makes that sense. fit your, your that that is that is how i would describe yeah that's a, a much better way to describe them when I, but i was especially like looking at people's like the their skin and their faces and stuff and they just looked like the best that they could look you know they looked really radiant and good but it nothing felt it didn't feel uh monkey Fake. It, yeah it didn't feel monkeyed with it didn't feel like you know sometimes you'll see where it's done in the grade or mm-hmm. it's it's done in in some kind of an artificial way or it's just overlit on the day and mm-hmm. it, it didn't it didn't feel that way so it just I don't know I mean that that's a good it's a good approach and do you do you take that approach to most of your work I mean do you think that most of what you do is kind of like when I was and again I'm looking only at what's on your reel but uh, do you tend to gravitate more towards character type work where you're trying to get that kind of a look it's an interesting question I definitely have a style and a taste that I gravitate towards but your exact question of do I tend to gravitate towards character work I think it's more that working in low budget in terms of where my career is at right now and the opportunities that I've had up till this point, mm-hmm. that most low budget projects are character pieces set in reality. Yeah. Because that's what is affordable to shoot that can be done well on an affordable budget. Yeah. But I would love to shoot fantasies and thrillers and sci-fi and you know I'm, I'm trying to get more of those opportunities but of course like begets like and yeah. you don't necessarily get hired for that stuff until you've done it i'm really excited that one of my upcoming projects is an action film um and nice. i haven't shot action before so that'll be good for the real as well as good experience to have under my belt mm-hmm. you know but by doing that so a lot of what you're asking is is sort of the opportunities that i've been given in terms of the projects that i've been hired to shoot up until this point but definitely when i have that kind of a script you know i've definitely shot films that are not beautiful films that are not beautiful subject matter and sometimes i've even picked them for that reason because i know that everything that i've done mostly on my reel is all beautiful and not everybody wants that for Mm -hmm. all their stories i like really edgy stories and a lot of times i'm i'm not going to be a director's first choice for an edgy story when what they see on my reel is commercial glossy looking yeah. everyone's beautiful all the time type of stuff you know i should be shooting episodic television uh which i would love to do by the way yeah. um in terms <laughs> of what's next for my career now that low budget films are just the budgets are just falling out from under everything that it's just really hard to make a movie for $200,000, which is what everyone's doing these days, I would much rather be shooting TV. Yeah. If only the technology that we have today could have existed 15 years ago, it would have been perfect. I think I know what you mean, but I think they're entwined. I think we are where we are today financially, budgetarily because of that. In part, it's a bigger conversation, but you look at how 
low budget films have kind of become a little bit more of a rarity. And I think part of it is that it's harder to make your money back when anyone can go on a BitTorrent site and just steal your movie. Yes. And, you know, a a good friend of mine made a, a relatively low budget movie and worked really hard on it for years and finally got a release and it was acclaimed at the festivals the day it went on sale pirated that day i'm shocked how many the attitude the prevailing attitude towards pirating movies that people don't think twice about it they don't think they're hurting anybody they think that you know oh it's just the studios and they think that anyone who's made a movie that there's tons of money behind it and that they're not gonna miss that They, they don't they're like, oh, I wouldn't have paid for that yeah. movie anyway. I'm only seeing it because it's free. But they don't know that, indie, like you just said, that someone could spend years. Most first-time filmmakers, you only get one opportunity to make a successful film. And if your film didn't make money, you're not going to get to make another exactly. film. So someone could be really talented and even have the connections and resources to have raised the money to get a film made and then their film not make any money because it's it's been pirated. Like, you... It, it hurts artists. It hurts yeah. indie filmmakers more more than people realize. One of my favorite things that people who are pro piracy will say to me is, "Well, at least your film got seen by more people." And I'm like, "I don't get to make movies because people see them. I I get to make movies because they make money for somebody." Mm-hmm. And uh, like the project that I just worked on, which was for uh, Crackle, I sort of feel like the people who made that a uh, guy named Ben Kitai, like um, who, who's who's made a bunch of these in a company called uh, Lifeboat. They seem to have figured out a way to basically make independent films sort of within a television-like structure. And they're working with the kinds of budgets that indie films or low-budget films would have been working with maybe pre-2007. You know, they're able to be a little bit edgier because it's for it's technically a web series. Mm-hmm. But they're also able to, like, hire a full union crew. I've, d- I've shot a few of those. And I think it's sort of a win-win. I-, I-, I don't know. I mean, the union people might say something differently. I think it's a win-win. They're doing everything under new media contracts mm-hmm. so they can pay everybody, you know, peanuts. They can pay anybody anything that they want, basically. I mean, people can argue against them paying people peanuts, but or that the people in the, in the union. I'm union. Um, you know, I was talking about local fifty two. Now I'm local six hundred. People can complain that these contracts are bullshit or sell, like those budgets just wouldn't have been covered under union contract. I if, agree. So you get you getting the opportunity to get your healthcare days and and that kind of thing. It's like okay, if you don't want those low budget union jobs, then don't take them. Exactly. I mean, yeah, if you have a choice, go, you know, go work on, you know, go work on Game of Thrones if mm-hmm. you ha- if if they're saying you can work on Game of Thrones or you can work on this low budget series. Um, but honestly, it was one of the best jobs I've had in a long time anyway, and I would rather be doing that than than complaining about how there's no work, which you know, from like 2008 to 2010 in LA, it w- it was pretty dry. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. And so it's like, I'm just happy that they're here and they're making stuff you mm-hmm. know, and that they're and that they're trying to make something great. They're working with limited resources and trying to make the best show they can, which I really appreciate. Mm-hmm. Getting back to the New York thing, I feel like I keep cutting you off in That's fine. New York, late 90s, mm-hmm. into the springtime of, uh, of of indie cinema, you know, when it's probably at its peak. You talked about Sex in the City. What other kinds of projects did you work on? Did you get to work on any of those kind of seminal independent films that were kind of Sundance darlings or anything like that? Yeah, I, as a day player, mm. you know, I, I worked on a bunch a bunch of stuff that went to Sundance. The, the biggest thing that fits in that category that I did work on full time was uh, You Can Count On Me. Oh, wow. So that was a very small crew. Um, great film, though. Great film. That was an 
really interesting experience because I had been working in indie film for a while at that point. And you work on a lot of stuff that you're working on something and it looks like it's it's good on set and then you see the finished film and it's crap. Yeah. Or you work on something and you it seems like it's crap and then you see the finished film and it's good. And you really can't tell how something's going to turn out when you're working on something. Mm-hmm. Working on You Can Count On Me, everyone on that set knew that they were working on something special. That's awesome. It was just an amazing experience. Like the work, the quality of the work, what we were getting every day, what the actors were bringing to it, the writing. Like everyone just knew that, that, that it was a special film we didn't know it was going to get nominated for two oscars yeah uh, and Pretty sweet and you know launch mark ruffalo's career and launch laura linney's career and i mean they obviously had experience and credits up until that point but who was the dp on that steve kazmierski did you pick anything up from working with steve kazmierski you know technique wise or his approach to shooting or anything like that i don't remember specifically any specific tricks I got off that movie or specific things that I attribute okay. to him personally. I, I I had more of a relationship with the gaffer on, mm-hmm. on that movie than than with Steve. I did more more movies and more projects over time mm-hmm. uh, with the gaffer. I mean, we're talking about a movie that probably shot for three weeks. <laughs> so, really? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe four back then. Did but. they like rehearse that thing beforehand or how do you? I don't know. I don't know if they did. I wouldn't. It's just some high quality uh, stuff to get in three weeks. Mm-hmm. Might have been four, but. Well, I mean, so let me ask in a more abstract sense. So in New York in, in the late 90s, early 2000s, is there kind of a sense of like, we're going to get away with some crazy shit? Like we're going to make, we're, was there a sense of we're the epicenter of this revolution? <gasps> I have a crazy story for you. Okay. Oh, awesome. You just led me into a direction that I think you're trying to get at. I worked on a movie in the early ni- no mid nineties in New York. It was a non union movie with a three million dollar budget. How do you even do that? Because back then they didn't have the low budget contracts that we have now, and basically New York was so busy. There were so many abuses by the producers. The whole reason that unions exist is that people need to be protected by people who are taking producers that are taking advantage of them. We were being so exploited in that movie in terms of hours and working conditions and lack of safety and all sorts of crazy stuff that the crew members who were at that point the most experienced non-union people who were getting hired for the biggest non-union movie were calling the union several times a week saying, please come shut down our production. Please come take over this movie because the conditions are so horrible And the word on the street was that the union was so busy with all the other projects going on that they did not have time to deal with some non-union production that was not under their jurisdiction because they had too much else going on. So that's how busy it was in New York in the the early night. This movie was, it was big. I mean, they don't make non-union movies that that big three million is a pretty big non-union yeah. budget. Like mm-hmm. Th- that here, wouldn't work hear, today. Yeah, I hear that they'll flip you once you get over like a million two. Well, yep, yeah, one point two is the point at which the numbers can be made to work. Basically, tell me a little bit about your card. Your card has kind of the Rosie the Riveter kind of a, an mm-hmm. image on it. What was the genesis of that? I had a really good uh, business card as an electrician, um, and I got a lot of attention for having a really bold and memorable card. Mm -hmm. 
it was a picture of me in a bikini wearing my tool belt on a beach and I look like a Bond girl. (laughs) And it was a little bit edgy, so I didn't give it to everybody. I didn't give it to people that I was was concerned about how they might take it. So I didn't want to do anything like that that was objectifying or too sexy but the the irony behind that business card the electrician one the famous bond girl electrician card was that it came about organically like i was working on sex in the city and we were shooting on the beach and i was brought in for a night exterior but it was such a remote location that they brought us in at the beginning of the day and all us extra people had nothing to do because it was all day exterior until it was time to rig the night work so we went swimming (laughs) and so i with your tool belt well once i do once i got out of the water i didn't want we we sort of snuck off and went swimming but Mm. i didn't want to be accused of loafing or not being ready to work so I was wet, so I didn't put my clothes back on, but I wanted to be ready to work, so I put my tool belt on and my boots back on, and everyone thought it was hilarious. <laughs> I'm walking around set. I didn't think twice of it because all the extras and talent, everyone, we're on a beach. Everyone's walking around in their bathing suits. It's not weird that I'm in my bathing suit at work. And everyone's like, oh, you look like a Bond girl. And so the still photographer brought me over and took my picture, and um, this was before everyone was shooting digital. This was season two, so I don't even remember what year that would have been. Um, it's late 90s, though, right? Oh, it was before I got married. So it was, ni- it was 1999. The still photographer gave out sort of yearbooks of prints of, like, crew portraits to all the key crew positions um, as gifts, like little booklets of, of prints. And I made it into the yearbook if you will because of this really funny picture of me in the tool belt with the bikini and and it was a very serious pose like i had on a hat it it was not glam it was very matter of fact i wasn't wearing makeup it wasn't glamorized it wasn't sexy like those girls in the tool calendars or anything Mm -hmm. like that and um it made such a stir people like oh you have to make that into a business card so i learned the power of having a bold and memorable business card and then I never had a good idea for a DP card. I had a boring, like I, I like pictograms and anyone who follows me on Facebook or Instagram knows that I'm obsessed with signs and funny pictures and like OSHA diagrams of like the, you know, scissor lift, like crushing you between the scissors or the lift <laughs> gate, like taking your head off or you know, all those funny pictograms. So I had like a pictogram, like a woman behind a camera, stick figure type of purple colored, boring text business card. And then every time I got new cards, I would be like, oh, I need to I need to design a better card. And then I'd run out of cards and I wouldn't have time to design a new card and I have to order the old cards because I needed cards. And that happened for years. And then one day my friend was over. My friend who was a still photographer, her name is Annika Schoeneveld. She is now a uh, big shot commercial food director. At the time, she was a local 600 unit set still photographer. And she had a great business card. And she's a good friend of mine. She was at my house. We were talking about branding. And I was like, I need a good business card. And we're like, okay, right now, brainstorming session. Let's come up with some ideas. We're going to create you a new business card. And we were talking as one does when they're developing branding or logos. Like, what are you trying to express about yourself or your brand or what makes you unique or you know, what do you want to say about yourself or your work? And so I started answering these questions. Like I was at the point in my career and my development where 
I was ready to embrace the fact that I am a female because I went for a long period of time since I started doing this from a very young age and sort of came of age and developed my identity and everything while I was a woman working in a man's field that for a long time I was just really trying to downplay my femininity and sort of be one of the guys and pretend that I'm not a woman. I was getting to the point where it's like, okay, I am a woman. There's no hiding it. Better to embrace it. It is what sets me apart. And so I started talking about images of women that are strong and women who, who are in action, but I like sort of glam retro style so that it is feminine, but not feminine passive. And so I was like getting all these descriptors going on and I was like something girl power, like, like Rosie the Riveter. And then we both looked each other in the face like, oh my God, she's got this pose like this. I could just hold a camera. I could be Rosie the Riveter (laughs) holding a camera. Like as soon as I said it, I was like, like Rosie, no, I'll be Rosie the Riveter. And so it it just, it happened very suddenly in one of those sort of sparks of inspiration. So we did a photo shoot and I bought the fabric for the head wrap and I went to a tailor and had them make it and I had the um, shirt embroidered with the local 600 logo and like I went to the embroiderer and they're like this this logo is too detailed for this size we can't do something this small with this amount of detail it's not going to look very good I had to convince them that it was for a photo shoot for a business card that was going to be this small and that (laughs) I didn't actually care that you couldn't read the letters and I wasn't going to be dissatisfied and please do it for me anyway even though it was against your policies (laughs) Um, and so of as I thought that it would, the card was a big hit. People love it. Um, it's really good branding and that it's memorable and it says a lot about who I am just creatively that I had that idea. It's a great idea and that it is like, you know, woman power, but she's, you know, at work and strong and feminine at the same time. And, you know, it's just I, I've given that card to people that have seen it before they've met me they're like oh i know i know oh this is you that's cool or even at sundance you meet so many people and then you forget about them and then you meet them again another year they're like oh i met you last year i have your card (laughs) or local local 600 put it on a t-shirt you know they 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 took my name off of it so it's not gender jarnigan's business card on a t-shirt it's just the image with the girl with the camera and it went back to the original rosie wording of we can do it yeah. I had to look up whether it was public domain or not, and they could actually put it. Is it, it public in. domain? Yep. Really? Yep. Which camera were you holding? A 235. I wanted it to be a film camera because it was retro, yeah. even though the Alexa had arrived. I, I did this this photo shoot at CSE. Uh-huh. They let me use a camera for it, but I didn't want to like take one off premise, so we like shot it at Ari CSC in New York. Um, and the Alexas had arrived like that week. And I was like, oh, maybe I should do one with an Alexa as well. Like, we knew the Alexa was going to be huge Mm -hmm. just to have it for the future or as an alternative or whatever. But they didn't have one to spare for me that day anyway. But size-wise and being able to hold it and not have it block myself and, you know, be a good proportion for the image, the the 235 was... BL4 would have been too big. Yeah. Yeah. As it was from holding it all day and posing, I got like a big bruise on my arm. So... (laughs) 
So let, let's uh, move a little bit forward. Before we started the interview, you were talking to me a little bit about technology. And I actually think that this is something that relates to what Ilya and I want to do with the podcast in general, is that we can get so wrapped up in the technology and so entrenched in it and thinking about it and talking about it, blah, 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 blah. Now, when you're on a set shooting, you just want the technology to get the fuck out of your way so you mm-hmm. can get your stuff done. But uh, you were talking about how you kind of got sucked into the vortex of uh, of, of techno babble. Mm-hmm. D- tell me a little bit about that. I was an early digital cinema pioneer. Like I was the resident DP at Red's trade show booth at NAB the year that they announced the camera. And I was the only DP in the booth. So I was the one explaining to people. I remember you. Oh, my God. No, <laughs> I remember of, that because I was there. A lot of people remember me in retrospect when I tell them that or... That raised my profile a lot that I encountered a lot of people who then saw me later who knew me as that person. So I was the one that all of the engineers and camera geeks and other DPs, like when when someone would come to the booth, you know, it was sort of random who you'd end up talking to. But depending on the questions you were asking, we'd send each other to the appropriate person who was the right person to take it from there. So it's like, oh, someone comes to me with the post question. You know, I give them to Mike Curtis or Michael Cioni or, you know, other people that were working. I'm pretty sure I grilled you about some. I don't even remember what it was because it was the first year that it was there. I made a cheat sheet that I put in my pocket about like all of the specs of all the other digital cinema cameras that existed then that I could when people would ask me, well, how is it different from the Genesis? Like I knew had memorized in preparation for this role that I had in the booth. All the pixel counts and the bit depth was, of everything. Was this the year where they actually had a working red there? Or was no, this the year that this they was just... the vaporware yeah, that remember. we won the award based on the <laughs> concepts? I, I actually, uh, I was doing some writing for Backstage back then and I would write about technical filmmaking stuff. And I wrote a whole article called The Shell Game about <laughs> about mm-hmm. the red camera. I'm like, it sounds cool, but there I can't see anything. And I think, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, I... At at the same time, I was kind of optimistic, and I remember that uh, I think Ted Chilowitz came out and did like a presentation, and everyone watched him when it was over. I started clapping, and like everybody else wasn't. I was like, "No, uh, all right, all right. I guess <laughs> I guess he's not getting okay. Whatever. No love for the red camera yet." Well, a lot of people were obviously skeptical, like, "Who are these people, and where do they come from, and why do they think they can build a camera?" Mm-hmm. Which is so funny because that's what people say about digital bollocks now. But um, the Serious people who knew people in the industry, who knew who Ted Chilowitz was, who knew who Stuart English was, who knew who Graham Natris was, once they came around and saw who was involved, like who had been cherry-picked to be a part of the team to make this happen, they took yeah. it a lot more seriously. So the, the people in the know about the people that were involved got a lot more confident once they saw well, and I sort of, involved. as I told you, I sort of knew, I didn't know Ted super well, but I'm from Orlando and so is he, or at least he spent time there and he was a DP. And I remember even seeing his DP reel back in the day mm-hmm. on VHS tape. Mm-hmm. As we did. Yes. When that was necessary. Wave when you were lucky enough to get stuff on video and you yes. could make a cut of VHS reel for yourself. So that was one of my early digital cinema, higher profile experiences. And then I was one of the first people to shoot with the Viper and I was one of the first people to shoot with the F-23 and I was one of the first people to shoot with the F-65. I'm like one of the first people to shoot with everything. So um, how did you end up being one of the first people in the in the path of these digital uh, cameras? Um, The people who make the decisions about who gets to test their cameras and use them before they're ready and give, give them feedback and whatnot know who I am and respect me. That when I have a project or a test project or a short or something that would be a good opportunity to try out a new camera have been 
supportive of me getting my hands, you know, on the on the technology because they know that I know enough about how to actually assess it to be useful to them to tell them like, oh, well, it falls short in this way or here's some concrete information that you can use for the next person who's going to ask you about, you know, this or that or te- the, basically the, 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 the really nuts and bolts mm-hmm. techie stuff and being able to talk the talk with the engineers from the companies and you know i've been on like design feedback panels for sony and you know focus groups and, and now that are, you, kind are, of stuff. are you still doing that stuff or did you uh-huh. kind of ext- uh, because you were talking a little bit about extricating yourself a little bit or at least backing off and connecting yourself more with the aesthetic yeah so there there was a at the highlight of my technical absorption i guess <laughs> um basically after the red booth experience um, I was getting a lot of attention for being an expert for um, I'm a smart person. I'm a technical person. I'm a brainy person. People tell me I have a good ability to articulate complex technical ideas and language that people can understand is a skill that I have. So I was in demand as a panelist, as a presenter, and I ran workshops at NAB and all the, all these other stuff. I was getting so much attention for that that I thought, I need to maintain this reputation. I I thought that that would get me more work in raising my profile. It probably did, but not to the degree that I necessarily expected it to. I expected it to launch my career in in bigger directions faster than actually Mm -hmm. ended up happening. But that was my motivation in riding that wave. Like, oh, okay, I'm getting all this press and people are calling me and featuring me in this or that, or they're flying me to this place to speak on this thing. And all these people who are important know who I am. None of those were people who hired DPs. They were (laughs) like company representatives and and that kind of stuff. People are coming to me because I know this stuff. I better know this stuff because they're coming to me. So I I kept my efforts up of you know, reading CML every day and reading all the articles oh that would God, come really? out. Is yeah, it, are there any more hours left in the day after you finish no, reading CML? No, I was a total workaholic oh, about it. Where God, I was on that thing for like a week and I was like, their life is too short to read this whole thing. And every new camera that came out, I felt I needed to test it. And it, it was sort of like this created reputation that, that I was getting attention for and thought that I needed to put on all this effort to maintain. Mm-hmm. So I was doing that, um, and it, it seemed to be serving me. I thought I thought that it was. Part of it was just a popularity thing and boosting my own ego about the attention that well, I was getting. It's also cool you get all the new toys. Like you're gonna sure. know, you're gonna know about that stuff before anybody else does. Ilya and I actually did a demo for uh, the uh, 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 HVX 200 when Panasonic first came out with it. So we got like a pre-release version of it, and it was like I asked a friend of mine to shoot it and all this stuff. And it was a blast because it's mm-hmm. like, hey, this is a new thing. Hey, look, you can do slow motion. Hey, this is a P2 card. Nobody knew what any of it was. But- so I, I thought, and because I was <clears throat> younger in my career, that, and I didn't really have no mat, I didn't really know that many DPs who were that much older and advanced in their career than I was at that time, mm-hmm. that I thought I needed to know all that stuff. That I thought that would, or that that would set me apart and that would advance my career. Um, so that's what I did for a while until I got to know some DPs that were shooting all the time and realized that they didn't know any of that shit and didn't feel like they needed to, Yeah, that it was kind of irrelevant to what it really meant to be a DP. And then I would talk to some producers who knew me personally and knew me well and were like, gender people don't 
hire DPs because of how knowledgeable they are about technology. They hire them for their eye, their eye and their taste and their style. Why don't you spend more time presenting yourself that way or developing that side of yourself? I remember a moment, it was a turning point. I was having a geeky conversation with another camera geeky, camera geek person. And in general flow of conversation, these words came out of my mouth. And when I heard myself say it, I was like, what if I become? Oh, no. When I actually said, without thinking, like in the flow of conversation, the MTF of the OLPF, when I actually said, the MTF of the OLPF to a person that knew what I was talking about and I was saying it as if it was relevant and in the conversation that I was like, what have I become? I have no idea what that even means. <laughs> it's the modular transfer function of the optical low-pass filter. Of course it is. And that has to do, the modular transfer function is the, is the uh, actual measure of sharpness uh-huh. versus resolution and contrast and all the other things that add up to the perception of sharpness. Um, and the optical low-pass filter is the thing that goes in front of the um, sensor mm-hmm. um, stacked with the infrared filter that has um, usually has a little bit of softening in it in order to cut down on aliasing in the camera yeah. and to scatter the light around. So that has a soft an inherent softness to it. So that's what I was talking about. But in such geeky terms... yeah. You've left the reservation. (laughs) And also people were asking me to consult like companies, big companies that I would want to think of me as a DP were thinking of me as a technologist. And I realized, okay, if that's the way I've positioned myself, then I'm a little bit off track that they're not thinking of me the way that I want them to think of me. They're thinking of me as I guess how I'm coming across to them. Then I need to shift gears. I said Mm -hmm. no to all of those, you know, technologists, jobs and consulting opportunities I said no to them because I didn't want to do that I didn't want those commitments in terms of taking me off track from my DP career but I didn't want them to think of me that way even if it was probably a lot of money now I mean back up a little bit too how do you how do you jump from being a gaffer to being a digital cinema expert <laughs> exactly I don't think of gaffers as the people who you go to to ask about the optical low pass filter they're no they're not related you know the gaffer was what I did um as a job, as a day job, mm-hmm. you know, as I was working my way up the DP ladder, um, I just kind of fell into the technology mm-hmm. thing. You know, I've always been a bit of a brainiac. And it's funny because I'm not a gearhead with the, um, I can't even build a camera. Like an AC needs to put together the plates and the, yeah. you know, the base plates and the, the Israeli arms and the cable. I don't even know how to put a camera together. I'm not interested. Like, I could figure it out if I needed to. I haven't needed to because there are people who do that for me. But uh, it's not, it probably wouldn't be that hard, but it it just, that side of it, the gearhead side of it, like my husband's a Steadicam operator and the, you know, millions of pieces of shit that he owns and he does a yearly inventory on this plane. He's got to order this new thing because the thing came out and this volts of the pinout isn't compatible with this. I don't give a shit about any of that stuff. But the stuff that I did care about was the stuff that pertained to the image making is that, okay, if I understand, you know, the difference between 8-bit and 10-bit and I understand the difference between, you know, a Bayer pattern and a RGB array or like any of these diff- technical differences between the cameras, to a degree that does inform why I would choose a camera for a certain job and how to manipulate that camera to get what I want out of it. 
artistically. I just had gone too far, you know, when I got caught up in in the stuff that became beyond relevant to the actual image making stuff. And it was just image science. It's like, I don't want to be an image scientist. Interestingly, like I think knowing that stuff, like you would be the perfect DP for like a science fiction or fantasy thing where you're doing a lot of visual effects because you would know, I don't know any DPs who would know all, all like down to the molecular level, what's going on on the sensor or any of that stuff. I know a few of them. They're all my mentors. (laughs) (laughs) And they're like, they're like, they're like way into that. But I think that like, if you know that stuff and you're doing a lot of green screen or you're doing, Mm -hmm. you're going to have to do a lot of compositing or Mm -hmm. rotoscoping or whatever the hell you're going to have to do. Mm -hmm. Like understanding how the sensor is creating that image because yes and no. I mean, you're correct, but you can hire a consultant or a DIT or an engineer who does do that stuff and you're not going to get the job because you know that stuff. I guess you're going to get the job because of the experience that you've had and the director wants to work with you and the work that you've created up to that point, visually and artistically, you're not going to take someone who has only shot low budget movies um, and give them a big science fiction film because they know about bit depth and pixel count and no, that, I mean that that does make sense but I also do feel like like when you get the opportunity to do something like that you're going to kick ass because yeah um, because no technologist is going to be able to speak techno babble at you over your head which they can do to most people Sure. But, and I think that when you don't know all the technology that's when you become a slave to the person who does know it and they mm-hmm. can they can basically tailor your workflow around their laziness that happened with with the uh, engineers and early DITs that would didn't when engineers didn't know their role as what has become a DIT as a collaborator that worked for the DP to support the DP's choices they would be like waveform Nazis and be like you can't do that you yeah. need to stop <laughs> down you're clipping like they would just be like I'm going by the rules of the chart the science uh. here not the that the DP gets to actually make the decision of something they want to clip, you know, yeah, I, I think, don't care that that's dark. That's supposed to be dark. Attitudes so that, have changed that happened. a lot. Yeah. I mean, like back, there was one DP who I worked with who refused. He didn't refuse. He did not like working with DITs for that very for that reason. Because they would tell you what to do. Back in the day, that yeah. changed pretty quickly when... Back in the way back in four back years ago. Back in the HD... No, it's been a lot more than, than four Back years. in uh, 2006... Being a DP is one-third technical, one-third artistic, and one-third managerial. And I had been I had been developing the managerial side of myself. I'd been developing the technical side, over-developing the technical side of myself at the expense of working on my creative development. Mm-hmm. You know, one that producer is like said to me, we hire DPs for, you know, what their work looks like. Spend your effort on that. And I asked myself, how do you improve, other than just working and getting to work more and more and more and on bigger and bigger projects and learning with everything that you get to shoot, you know, that that's like only comes in time when you're working. It's like, okay, what do I do with my in-between hours? How can I actually develop myself artistically? I didn't really know. And that scared me that I didn't know. And I realized the reason I was gravitating toward the technical stuff is because it was concrete. It's like you can figure out what you don't know and you can find that. You can go out and seek and find that information. But when you look at yourself and say, I wish I was more imaginative or (laughs) I wish that, you know, more variety of ideas came to me more quickly you know 
under pressure in the moment. Like things that you look at yourself as an artist and you look at where you'd like to be as an artist and where that gap is and you're like, how do I get better at that? It's back to where you were at NYU where it's where you're being asked to be a director and a writer director and you're not having an idea for the story. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I don't know the answers. So I don't know what the timeline is going to be for getting better at that. Like I knew, okay, if I spend all this time learning all this stuff and I'll get better at that, but it's like, I may not get better. I got to go down all these messy roads of like, let me try this and see how that works for me. Let me see if this speaks to me. Okay. Let me read these books on the creative process. Let me go to more museums. Let me look at more photography. Let me take more photography. Let me, um, learn how to draw like any number of things that are just more creative and more, artistic and you don't really know where they're going to lead and and I realized that that was a little scary to me like that that was out of my control yeah it's like you know but that's what life is all about so I, I I'm happier and less obsessed with technology and have more fun and do things because I feel like it but and, still relatively obsessed with technology um I don't think I'm obsessed anymore no. like I don't care about new cameras until they are relevant to me like i've just spent many hours in the past week like learning how to use gopros because now i need to know how to use gopros everything i've ever shot that involved a gopro for a specific shot or whatever there were people on my crew who had the gopros who set up the gopros who knew how to work the gopros and i could just say i wanted to do this or do something over here and there was someone to do it now I have a documentary coming up where I have no no crew. I have no ACs. I have no DITs. It's just me. And I have to set up some GoPros. And I don't know how to use them. I mean, I know what they do. I know to pick the Hero 3 Plus yeah. Black Edition over the other things. But I had to learn that too. So now I'm learning about mounting options and how many SD cards do I need? And how do I... What, what back piece do I need in the monitor and the housing and the... the it's like I didn't I never spent the time learning that stuff until I needed to yeah. know it and now I need to know it so now I'm going to spend the time doing not it not the most intuitive camera on earth either no I mean it, it, that's just an example but I, yeah. I've, I have adopted that as a new philosophy that a new camera comes out and like okay what do I need to know about it now okay I need to know what it does and a little bit about its specs and sort of where it fits in in comparison to other cameras but I don't need to test it until I have a project that it might be a good fit for. Then I'll learn all about it. Then mm -hmm. I'll test it. Then I'll compare it to other stuff. Because several cameras have come and gone that I wasted my time learning about mm -hmm. that I never even shot a project with them. Oh, no. Because by the time I learned about them and then I had this project and then I had another project and that wasn't the right camera for that project. And then the next thing I know, I'm on to another project and like that camera's not even relevant anymore. And it's like, why did I spend all that time learning about that camera that doesn't even exist now when so. you're uh, when you're starting out on a new project like how many cameras do you tend to test out um it depends if there's anything new that i haven't used yet that is worth considering yeah like is your a go-to happy place camera for you or um you know do you like say well i like the red i like the alexa let's uh you know bring in the actress and put her in the full makeup and wardrobe and t do some lighting and camera tests do you do any of that kind of stuff yeah um i mean i've I usually do lighting and camera tests. I probably have decided on the camera by then. Mm -hmm. I'll do some some techie side-by-side -side tests um, to, to compare. 
one camera to another um and then i know that, that something's the right tool for the job before i like actually bring in you know the actress what, what would, kind of criteria do you think you tend to look at dynamic range light sensitivity ease of use form factors really important to me i like a camera to be shaped like a camera i hate putting 20 pieces on a c300 to turn it into a usable rig yeah you know I, i'm a huge fan of the f55 that sony finally listened and made a camera that's shaped like a camera all you do is put the little clippy thing in the front and you got rods on it and put a lens on it put it on your shoulder and go you know i i know what to order for a f55 package you know, it's, it's more like an you know an alexa that way that looking at a c300 it's like what do i need to make this into a, u- a usable camera and then you got to put weights off the back of it and i hate that shit I'm like I, even if the camera's good even if the camera's cheap like that's a big strike against using it in my book is that i have to put 20 pieces on it and aftermarket accessories and franken rig and all that and all that yeah, stuff yeah. so Could form you. factors i think more important to me than other people other people don't seem to be bothered by that the way that i am it drives me nuts i think more people are concerned with form factor than you think I okay. think the form factor is a huge argument you'll always hear for the Alexa, for instance. Yes, absolutely. Like when the Alexa versus Epic argument comes uh-huh. up, as it does, you know, it's like, I don't think anyone's going to say you can't do a good project with one or the other. Uh-huh. But I think DPs prefer the Alexa, despite it being a lower resolution, because it feels like a real camera. Mm-hmm. Well, you made me realize just now in saying that, that the Epic is kind of more shaped like a C300, but I don't think of it that way because it is a system. Yes. Like red packaged everything that it's, you know, you got the pro module on the back and it has its own base plate and it has its own monitor. Like you don't have to think about how do I put yeah a red, an Epic package together. You just order an Epic package and though it is modular and can be stripped down for when you need it to, yeah. it in effect kind of comes with all of its pieces. Whereas if C300 doesn't, it's all third party accessories and you don't from rental house to rental house you don't know what options are available and what solutions you're gonna end up with but even um, on the low end like when they came out with a black magic and it's like you obviously have to get an external battery for this it's like really so you have a small form factor but you're gonna just lard it up right it's off a the little bat. box yeah i don't i'm not into those yeah um but another you know what factors to you consider costs cost is a really important thing you think that as a dp oh you don't have to worry about that Yes, I do. Like, mm-hmm. depending on what you're working on, you know, what what the right tool for the job is, you know, if, if you're going to, like, force your production to rent an Alexa when they can't really afford it, when you could work with another camera that would be sufficient for what you're doing for way less money that you can put into your lighting package or you're yeah. having a couple extra day player electricians for that night exterior scene that's really important, like, that's going to make a bigger difference to... The final look of the film than which camera you're using they're all more similar than they are different at this point so you've had again i feel like i feel like i'm getting even more techy than i, than I prefer <laughs> to get but you but you've had some experience working with the um with the digital bolex mm-hmm. which is kind of an exciting new thing because obviously it was kind of conceived on kickstarter and i i think that it was greeted with a lot of optimism and skepticism and probably equal equal measures you've used it you've shot on it mm-hmm. so what's the thing like in order to be used in a pro- professional production environment, you do need to kit it out. You need you do need to put a Frankenrig on it, and you need an external monitor, and you need an external battery, and you need to, you know, figure out your 
hard drive recording solutions. If you're going to work on a professional film with professional expectations and professional time mm -hmm. management situations, then you do need to build it into that like any of these other small cameras. However, what I like about it versus the Blackmagic, you know, pocket camera that a lot of people compare it to in terms of its features and price point is that it, it is shaped like a camera. It's shaped like a little camera, but you can hold it. You can put it in your hand and you could just put a lens on it and go out and shoot. Like you could go shoot in a car. You could go shoot on the streets. You could go, you know. Which is what the, this is what the creators wanted. They wanted it to be like a Bolex. Yeah. So you can do that with it. You know, we we did a little bit of that for some of the second unit for, for the film that it was being used on. You know, we had one that had a, a full kitted out rig with a map box and you could put filters on it and everything else. And then we had another like picking up and run around with it and it fits in your hand. And like it's it's a little like little in a good way camera that's shaped like a camera that you can hold. And, you know, so it it's. It's cool. It's 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 got its its place and it's got its strengths and its weaknesses. And well, I mean, is there anything specific about the look of it that uh, that does it give you an interesting, different look than you would get out of something else necessarily? It's not very light sensitive, so it can get noisy, mm -hmm. which a lot of people and image purists and techies think is a bad thing or a weakness. I actually like the way the noise looks. Like we were, they were recommending you know to not rate it over 200 but it can go up to 400 or even 800 and i was shooting at 400 on purpose because i liked the look of the noise as a distinctive mm -hmm. you know the noise was was it's a pleasing noise that that it's not icky you know it, it is noisy but it's just part of the reason that that it was chosen for that project is that it has a look that's different than everything else like the the you know, the director of that project had a um, an issue that I can totally get on board with her objection to the fact that most films shot digitally these days, you know, have a very uniform look to them. You know, of course, everyone lights everything differently and every yeah. subject matter. But there, you know, the clean, the, there's a lack of texture that you had on film and that all the lenses are super sharp and everything's crisp and sharp and... You know, she wanted a more beat up, you know, old lens, textury, you know, kind of look to look to the film. And I, I think it's great that we've gotten to the point in digital cinema that there are cameras out there that are different and are embracing that they're different. Like that, you, you know, a few years ago with Red and everything else, they were all just trying to compete with each other to be like, well, it doesn't measure up to this other one. And I like that we're past that point that you can make a $3,000 camera that you're not even going to try to make measure up in terms of image quality or professional features mm -hmm. with a $40,000 camera and say, okay, this is what it is as at an affordable price and it can do some pretty cool stuff and it looks pretty good. And I, I like that the Bolex likes, looks the way the Bolex looks and I like that the Blackmagic looks the way the Blackmagic looks and you can choose what you want your film to look like based on you know the inherent image characteristics of a certain camera instead of like the philosophy of, of make them all look neutral and the same and and create it in post you know I, I think that's good in theory that that gives you more power but that so often 
ends up not being the case. Like people, yeah. you know, have their dailies love and, you know, go into the grade and do different things with it than you meant to and yeah, you know, that yeah. kind of stuff. So yeah, I think I think it's it's an interesting time, you know, that that we're making new cameras that don't have to be perfect, if you will. Cool. And, <laughs> well, I think that's a, a really great place to leave it. Where can people find you online? My website is floatingcamera.com. And are you on uh, Twitter or any of those? Uh, Instagram, any any other feeds people could follow you on? Uh, yep. Twitter is Gendra, J-E-N-D-R-A. Instagram is Gendra DP. Cool. Well, Gendra Jarnigan, thank you so much for coming into the Cinematography Podcast. Thanks for having me. <clears throat> so that was Gendra Jarnigan. Gendra is going to be someone to watch. She's already done a remarkable amount of great work and built quite a following in a, in a short period of time. But I guarantee you that Gendra is someone you're going to be hearing a lot more from in the future. Big things. So uh, let's go into our war story. Who's our war story with today, Ilya? Our war story today is from Mike Mickens. Mike Mickens, who I always like to think of as the DP of Leprechaun in the Hood. <laughs> he is the DP of Leprechaun in the Hood. Mike Mickens also has a varied past and he's worked on all kinds of projects and I actually don't want to say too much about him. I think I'd rather let it be a surprise. All right, so here we go, Mike Mickens. And now, War Stories. The name of the movie is Not Like Us. Uh, Joanna Pakula was the leading actress in the movie. We were on the set, I remember, up in uh, Melody Ranch, I believe, and shooting... A scene where the other actress in the movie comes to the door, who's an alien. I put a kind of a low key in for the woman who comes to the door. The one thing that Joanna always did before we did any takes was she would take out her compact mirror and she would look at herself and she would kind of turn her head and make sure all the lighting looked good from all different angles. It's an old school actress thing. Always admired that that she did that and looked for her lighting. So we had set up the scene where she has to walk to the door and open the door for this woman who's actually an alien. So Joanna walks up to the door and sees the light on the ground, right? And says, Michael, what is this vampire light that you put here? I said, no, 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 don't worry, Joanne, don't worry, Joanne. That's not for you. It's for the other actress. Oh, thank you, thank you. I know you'd never put that under me. Always make your leading ladies look good. It's very important. And now, short ends. All right, so that was Mike Mickens. Look forward to the extended interview with Mike Mickens in our next episode, which hopefully will be pretty soon i hope so too you and me both brother <laughs> all right so Ilya, what is your short end this week what is your obsession of the week well this also could have fallen into the realm of year in review one of the things we didn't really talk about for it's related to cinematography is lighting uh this was definitely the year of led lights it was the first year that i think that leds really in some ways threw off their shackles of is it because they're getting cheaper is it because they're getting more they're getting better they're just getting they're getting better and but it, but bottom line are they getting cheaper can i and when can i buy some of these they are cheaper they are cheaper now. good i gotta give a little credit to light panels because light panels 
they were the first out there on the scene and they were the first, but they weren't necessarily the best. And so there was a lot of people using LED technology that was actually uh, higher CRI, uh, more uh, full spectrum. Uh, their newer products, which what are, is CRI? You just lost me there. Sorry. Yeah, that, that CRI is one of these three letter acronyms that uh, gets thrown around a lot, which is color rendition index. And it is a scale, albeit a flawed scale of telling how much color information there is inside your light. And here's what a geek I am. I think I might've mentioned this in a previous episode, but I went to NAB with a spectrometer, which is something that measures CRI nerd. Yeah, it was pretty bad. Does it fit in your pocket protector? It actually has its own pouch. <laughs> Does it? Does it come with a fanny pack? It came with a wrist strap and uh, a wrist strap. A wrist strap. Yeah, exactly. You don't want to drop this thing. This spectrometer, which is a sort of like the size of a very large cell phone, mm-hmm. a cell phone from like the uh, late eighties. Oh, like a Michael Douglas kind of cell phone. Yeah, it's kind. Of, it's kind of like that. More expensive than my first two cars put together. So, you know, well, so your first two cars. So you bought like when you were 16. So it's like, yeah, exactly. So it's like $400. Uh, my, my second car was a $2,500 car. I worked at subway a long time to afford that car. Oh, okay. So enough. anyway, but yes, my, my other car was like a $600 car. So, so, so we're talking go. like a $3,000 meter that comes with a wrist strap. Yes, that's exactly Is the wrist that. strap extra. The wrist strap was included free. Okay. Of charge. Good, okay. Good, good. So anyway, led lighting is sort of this, um, I won't say that it is the dominant standard right now for lighting, but I predict that this is something that everyone will be using in very short order because the LED lights now are getting to be extremely high quality, relatively inexpensive. Not every brand, not everyone out there, but one brand in particular is amazing, and it's by a company called Felix, and Felix is spelt somewhat odd. It's F. I-I-L-E-X. And in the interest of full disclosure, yes, Hot Rod Cameras does sell Felix lights. So it's not like... Uh, you son of a bitch I'm, selling your I'm, lights on your own podcast. I, I'm sorry. But, you know, they... God. We sell other brands I'm, of... I'm leaving my own house We now. sell other brands of LEDs as well. But I got to say that Felix are, are quite uh, amazing. And I had a chance to work with them in a non-professional capacity recently where I really got to just take a really solid look at how they perform. Did you use the spectrometer? I did not use the spectrometer. No spectrometer. So you spent all that money on spectrometer. You didn't even apply to your I, own Felix lights. I use the spectrometer in the office. You, you know, you can come into the office with, with an LED light of your choice, and I'm happy to break out the spectrometer and show you what your light is and, doing. And look at the CRI of any light. You can look at the CRI. And now we... I don't know what a CRI is, but I know that it's a thing. It is a thing. Okay. So, so anyway, uh, Felix lights. Um, I finally lit a big space with uh, two Felix lights and really filled in sort of like the raccoon eyes shadows that uh, people tend to experience when they just are using house lights. And I created a beautiful backlight situation. And I have to say that from these two lights that, essentially generated no heat which made no one discomfort and i used house power for all of it holy crap then honestly the the no heat thing on leds is possibly the best thing about them because we've all been in like a room as small as the room you and i are in right now oh yeah lit with movie lights just sweating and like just ladling off the sweat off your actors after take after take the amount of powder that one particular actor and one particular thing i was involved with years ago i think that the the makeup artist probably went through two full containers of powder on this guy because it was like the hot light above there were emergencies at the talcum mines that month oh it, unbelievable it was like we got one take and then as soon as cut was more powder i know it was like, guys it, like that and you know granted it was a gland thing i'm sure but at the same time yeah, yeah. uh 
if you were able to do that with LED lights, and granted, there were other ways. You probably could have done Kino flows and, and other things. But but you know that it obviously increases productivity on the set when the crew isn't logy because they're frying and, and hating their existence. You don't need the air conditioning, the portable air conditioning units that you'd have to bring into. You would have to bring into in other situations when you weren't working with hot lights. It's really interesting to me that this new LED technology and particularly what, what Felix is doing, these lights have greater CRI than quite a few HMIs out there, which is, Oh, that's sweet. It's, it's really impressive. So, you know, something that I thought would be more of an, of, of a side effect of led lighting is like seeing really good airy kits going super cheap. Haven't seen that really. No. And I think there's a lot of people who really see the value of those airy kits. And there is something to be said about the knowledge of how to work with a 650 Fresnel or a 300 Fresnel or that sort of thing. And when you start to get into the LED space, a lot of these players out there have said, well, it's just a soft light. Here's a panel or, oh yeah, it's a Fresnel. And it kind of, kind of looks a little bit like this other stuff. But I, I will say that some of these brands, some of these other companies out there that are making LEDs, they are not quite up to snuff. I found out that most LEDs are made in like the same five or six giant plants overseas. And Felix are not like that. Felix are actually made in California, which is highly unusual. And they don't sell their LEDs to anybody. They just build them for themselves. The other people out there tend to buy their LEDs from like the same several companies. And it kind of works like this. The best LEDs that come off the line, those LEDs have the least efficient use of power. They actually take more uh, energy to create their, their high quality light. But then off that same assembly line, the same like, you know, manufacturing line, there's going to be another run that didn't quite reach the highest quality. And so those get sold for a slightly lower price. And they might have like five or six like grades that come out of the same exact line of these LEDs that then get sold off to different manufacturers. So if these manufacturers are buying like tier three or tier four, it's going to be much less expensive for them. And they're going to get a much poorer quality of light than the people who are doing the really top tier. And so when people out there see these like one by one or similar sized LED panels that are really inexpensive, I guarantee you they've got the cheap, not so good LEDs. That's And CRI flawed scale. You'll have someone say, oh, we have 95 CRI and their average might actually be 95. But unless you actually look at the amount of color that it's putting through and the different categories of that color, you might have like almost no information like in one of the But in order to do that, we're going to have to part you from your spectrometer. Yeah, that's that's the problem. So Uh you don't you can't actually know this stuff unless you get someone with a spectrometer or, or you really study the, the the photometrics out there there's a lot of really interesting brands right now well and, and i actually think that in all seriousness i think that one of the deals about dps is like don't talk to me about spectrometers just tell me what to do like i just want to get the light that i want and because i'm used to you turning on an area and getting this or that yeah and i that, feel like these things are going to cross over completely when it gets to the point where to and already you're seeing it where DPs are just used to using these things Mm -hmm. and they're used to getting the results that they want out of them. And it's just kind of plug and play, stick it up, you know, and, and, uh, they're, they're finding their way into the ecosystem of, you know, the grip electric trucks and getting more and more market penetration. I agree. And what Felix in particular has really going for it is analog dimming. It's really nice to not have to drop a scrim in. You just want to analog dim it down a little bit without having a color shift. You can do that. You also have analog color tuning. So if you want to make it a little bluer, a little oranger, you've got between like 2,800 and 6,600 Kelvin. So you've got this, you can have something tungsten or even warmer than tungsten or something that's daylight or even cooler than daylight and you don't have these like weird steps like a lot of led brands out there where uh you you 
you have like, you know, a 500 or a thousand Kelvin increment, this you can just actually just finesse a little tiny bit and say, I want to cool it down a little and add a little bit of coolness. So anyway, uh, Felix LED lights, amazing. They have a thing called the Q500, which uh, I think is brilliant. It's possibly my favorite LED light today. So Ben, what is your short end this week? Uh, my short end is a, uh, as a web series called high maintenance. I first heard about high maintenance, maybe about a year or two ago. And I think it was actually being talked about on one of the slate podcasts as kind of an interesting web series. And it's about a pot dealer in New York. And it's an anthology. That's kind of a dramatic comedic kind of a thing, uh, that was created by, um, two people. Uh, I believe the the creators were Kaja Blitchfield and Ben Sinclair. They get really good cast and, and all the stuff and it's a cool web series whatever there's a million web series is it a comedy yeah it's kind of a dramatic comedy like it kind of rides the line of both dramedy <laughs> but the um and it's an anthology so like every episode is named after the client that this guy's dropping off pot to that's all cool and that the fact that this is a, a good web series kind of yesterday's news the interesting thing about it is they chose to go like in a in a time when everybody was going to youtube with their web series these people chose to put their web series on Vimeo and the conventional wisdom would say putting your web series on Vimeo means you're never going to make any money at it. You know, you can monetize on YouTube, but the deal is you have to get like a million hits before you'll make like a couple of grand monetizing on YouTube. And I always feel like the scam of that is that YouTube is monetizing those first million hits. They're monetizing the majority of the hits that you're, that most videos are going to get unless you're somebody with millions of subscribers. And Vimeo doesn't monetize at all because they don't do any advertising. And I personally think Vimeo is a better user experience. It's better to, it's better looking. It's cleaner design. It's not cluttered and ugly. Like YouTube to me is like MySpace. It's just a cluttered, ugly shithole. And um, Vimeo is, is just a much cleaner and it's more, I think, respectful to the person watching the thing because you just go there for the content. There it is. So they released two seasons of this on Vimeo and then Vimeo paid for the third season. So they're releasing it uh, or they have already released it as a pay-per-view uh, season. And I think it's like $2 per episode or $8 if you want to watch the whole season. I think it's an interesting step forward for Vimeo, who's trying to be the more filmmaker friendly experience. Yeah. They're like the, uh, the art house of online video, I guess. And it's a step forward because obviously Vimeo is able to look at the analytics and see how many people are watching these videos and how long, just like everything YouTube can do, they're doing the same thing. But they're trying to monetize it in a different way. How are they trying to monetize it? Just from the end user paying a pay-per-view or they're trying to Correct. Way? Okay. It is literally just about the audience paying to watch it. And it's it's like cable TV. <laughs> you know, like you pay to watch it and you watch it. And you know, like premium cable, there's no commercials. And that's sort of what Vimeo is doing with a web series. And I don't think anybody's ever done that before. And it's very interesting. And I'm hoping that it's a huge success. Because I would rather see web series in that kind of a form. And I think that it would be interesting to see more original content on Vimeo that, that reached a bigger audience. Is Vimeo available via your Apple TV or via your Roku or via your uh, PlayStation 3? Correct. I think Vimeo, I don't know about a PlayStation because I don't have one, but it's uh, available on everything that I know of on, on all of those things. Hmm. Uh, it's an app like any other one. So I know it's on Apple TV. I know it's on Roku. I'm pretty sure it's on uh, Xbox. I think it's on most smart TVs. And Vimeo has, I think, also like one of the best platforms for indie self-distribution where if you get an, a Vimeo Pro membership, which is like, I think it's $200 a year, you can do basically a 90-10 split with Vimeo. So you can set a price. So you, let's say you make a feature film, 
you put it up on Vimeo, you know, let's say the price you set is $5 to rent or $10 to buy. You keep 90% of the income that comes in from it. And, you know, obviously it's, it's on you to market it. It's on you to do all that other stuff, but it's a worldwide self-distribution platform. Unlike anything we've ever seen. And if the experiment, it's not an experiment really, but if, if this catches on enough, I feel like it can be sort of a second wave for indie filmmakers to be able to get literally anything off the ground. I think it sounds like there's a lot of promise there. It'll be interesting to see what, what Vimeo does. Uh, YouTube has really talked a good game and they have, of course, the power of Google behind them. Uh, YouTube showed up at, at Sundance last year and I, I met some people from, from YouTube and was talking to them and I felt like there was an awful lot of arrogance in the, uh, well, they the own the space, you know, YouTube owns the online video space and it's bizarre to think that that's like that you could be the old man on the block there because, uh, you know, like YouTube, I think started in 2005. It hasn't really been around for, you know, it's not like Universal Studios or NBC or something. And and I don't mean to 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 bash YouTube because, you know, I probably do see something from YouTube on a daily basis. Not but, at all. We all use YouTube. But I got to say, you're right. The experience of using YouTube leaves a lot to be desired. And I find myself now that if someone sends me a link to a YouTube video and there is a commercial that I cannot skip, I sometimes will decide not to watch it. <laughs> I'm, same here. Same here. And I feel like... I mean, like, you know, you can complain about anything. I mean, I think YouTube has enabled so many filmmakers and so many films to be seen by so many people. And we can all fall into a hole on YouTube, as I think most of us probably have. I remember one time being like, I wonder how many obscure interviews with Orson Welles there are. And it's like, there went my day, my whole day watching Orson Welles interviews on YouTube. It's amazing. I learned how to fix the little pull chain from my ceiling fan from YouTube, yeah. So YouTube, YouTube is a great boon, but I do think that the look of it, the ads of it, and you know, like I was given some advice about like, like ways to make YouTube videos successful. And it was stuff like, if you have a pretty girl in your video, make the thumbnail, like the sexiest, you know, like the skankiest skankiest. That's exactly <laughs> the word I was looking for. Sure. Like make that your thumbnail because you're going to like increase your number of hits and it's sort of like you it's it's sort of a race to the bottom in a sense if you're trying to play the game of let me get the most hits let me get the most views let me get the most subscribers and therefore monetize and i think that monetizing on youtube is one of those things that like almost nobody's able to really do i actually think that i'm going to i remember i think we only have two youtube videos or something like that but i think i'm going to remove all of the ads because basically the stuff that i would put up there it's going to get a few hundred hits. It's never going to be like, you know, maybe it'll get a, a thousand hits or something like that. It's never going to be something that I would ever monetize. So to have any sort of commercial on there, I think it's just a, a waste. It's a, it's annoying. Oh, it's annoying to the yeah. viewer. And I mean, I just think that the YouTube interface itself is just kind of a cluttered, ugly mess. And I just appreciate kind of the clean simplicity of Vimeo and the way that I feel like Vimeo has put viewers ahead. But I feel like, you know, specifically for my short end, high maintenance is an interesting and innovative move to take something like a web series of which there are, you know, gajillions of them on YouTube and try and build an audience in a different way and try and monetize in a different way. And I feel like there's something just so transparent instead of saying, instead of like when you watch a uh, commercial on YouTube, you're a commodity basically being traded by YouTube to advertisers. And it's maybe a slightly more honest interaction on um, Vimeo to just pay your dollar, your $2, watch your video and know that that money is going pretty much directly to the people who made it. You're supporting the people who are making the web series. And the people who make 
high maintenance. Like they sell some merchandise and they do some other stuff like that. And they basically, sometimes they'll do like a crowdfunding campaign. And when they do, they say, if you like what we do, support our crowdfunding or buy our merchandise and we'll be able to make more episodes. But even if you don't, we're going to keep doing this because we like it. And I think that is uh, an inspiring thing to hear that, you know, filmmakers who have access to TV and studio kind of people, this is how they're choosing to, to make their product. This is how they're choosing to make, to make their art. I hope there's more of this and I hope that there's more outlets like Vimeo in the future, but it remains to to be seen how successful this is. I really hope that, uh, this becomes a new outlet for filmmakers because I, I agree Vimeo gives you a pretty decent experience when, when you're there. So, uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's hope that this isn't that high maintenance is not the, uh, the last one of these they do. Cool. So, uh, so that's about it. Uh, as, as always, Ilya, where can people find you? People can find me at hotrodcameras.com. Sweet. And, uh, I can be found at benrockonline.com. On Twitter, you can find me at Neptune Salad. And uh, I've been trying trying to Instagram a little more lately. I don't know how successful I'm being at the Instagram. Yeah, Instagram, I uh, I haven't made that that plunge. I look at a couple of people's Instagram's accounts who are, are really pretty decent. But yeah, that's, uh, that's the next I, one. I, I try to only make interesting Instagrams and not like, hey, everybody, I had a tuna melt for lunch because I find that boring to tell people about. Yeah, there's a lot of tuna melts on Instagram. It's uh... Tuna melt Instagram. So, uh, so oh, let's not forget to mention uh, Kay's Alatrachi. Kay's Alatrachi, all of our music uh, done by Kay's Alatrachi. Go to musicbykays.com. That's K-A-Y-S. Every kiss begins with Kay's. <laughs> <laughs> so please check out Kay's uh, website and hire him and pay him lots of money to compose an awesome original score for your next production. And we promise that in 2015 we'll be back much more frequently with many more cinematography podcasts. Thank you very much for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.